It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Hi, and welcome everyone to Bootstrap City Rising, a webinar about Ciudad Morazan, the ZA in Honduras. My name is Niklas Ensinger. I'll be the moderator with you today. So we're in Bootstrap City. I am there right now. Right, so I'm going to stay here for this week. First, I'm going to give a short introduction together with Alex, who's sitting right next to me. So what you can expect from this webinar. So we're going to give a short introduction. Then we're going to get a bit of a background about free cities from Vera Tichanova, Jorge Colindres. And we're going to spend some time in Q&A right after. So this, this will be sort of a general overview about free cities, private cities, and that is in Honduras to get a sense of what's the context that Morazan is in. And after Q&A and a break, we're going to do a deep dive into Morazan. So the founder, Massimo Asone, is here. He'll speak about the vision behind Sida Morazan. Joyce Brand will speak about the founding philosophy that influenced Morazan, Spencer Heath McAllen. And then Alex will again talk about doing business in Morazan, talk about building a crypto economy, talk about what's already here and what is attractive for people to, to come and build a startup in their business. We're going to end with a long Q&A because there's typically lots of questions. So feel free already at any point during the conversation, um, put questions in the chat. I'll be the moderator, so I'll try to make sure that all questions are answered. And that's easy for me if you put it in the chat. A bit of a background about myself. I'm the general partner of Infinita VC. So that's a venture capital fund. So what I'm excited about um, startup cities is that we can build technology, build businesses here that are hard to do elsewhere. Right. So for me, this is especially relevant in crypto. Regulators are basically a constant threat to crypto businesses in the United States and in many other places. So we need exit options where, where it's easier for us to do business. Another one is hardware. So for example, drone technology. That's very hard to do because drones are regulated like airlines in the United States. So it's good to have the space to experiment with that. And third, in biotech and medtech. Right. So in Prosper, for example, we do clinical trials in medical tourism. I found out about Ciudad Morazan last year. So my, I read this very long Scott Alexander article about Prospera that also mentioned Morazan and talked about Zedis broadly. And I was thinking my background is as an entrepreneur. I'm from Germany. 
and it was just not, I was not satisfied with the governance options we had to build technology. So I read the Scott Alexander article and I was like, oh my God, this is it. Almost sounds like too good to be true. So I got to visit Honduras and I got to see Prospera and Morrison with my own eyes. So last year in April, I organized a, the first independent conference in Prospera, the Build Prospera Summit. And Alex joined me at that conference together with almost 20 other people from all over the world, from Germany, from Hong Kong, from Singapore, that were curious as well. And they wanted to see what is happening in Honduras and what um, advantages it provides to building businesses. Right. And in the wake of that, after that first conference, which was really unforgettable, I decided to, um, to move to Prospera more long term and help supercharge the movement towards charter cities and free cities. Right. That's why I'm also here in Morazan. Um, the people in Morazan became friends to me as well. And Alex uh, decided to move here right, right after that conference. With that said, Alex, do you want to set, tell the same story, the story from your perspective, how you got involved in Morazan and how that inspired you to do Bootstrap City? Yeah, so for those that don't know me, um, Alex Sigorgi, been interested in the move here projects for quite some time. Uh, I thought the free estate project was very interesting, but there were some challenges to being in a state in the U.S., mainly a lack of autonomy. And they seem to lack a clear mission, very political projects, and I'm more interested, I would say, in economic projects. So I started a project called Crypto Frontier in Saipan, which is a U.S. territory, has a lot of autonomy. We try to gather a bunch of crypto people all in one place. And there's only 18,000 voters, 50,000 people. So the hope was that we could get a critical mass, have a lot of government support to build cool things from stable coins, the wallets, the exchanges, and all the rest, and also reform legislations to make it more friendly for cryptocurrency companies. However, we started to see, first there was COVID, which was a major hiccup. And then secondly, the federal government in the U.S., which still has some authority over U.S. territories, started cracking down. There was money service business enforcement, securities enforcement, and many others. And the main thing is it's the place to build. Even in the most autonomous place in the United States, you still have the United States government and I was told about the Hedora SETI movement and I came to check it out and I was super impressed. They didn't have all their COVID issues inside the ZETIs. They weren't mandating businesses to do all these things. They didn't lose your business, get it shut down, get special taxes and other restrictions. Likewise, on the crypto front, there were essentially no restrictions. You're free to use whatever money or technology you wanted to interact. So I found this very attractive as someone trying to build a highly regulated industry. I no longer had to worry about regulations. And I also was able to find a supportive government in Morazan, who was very open to having technologies and payment softwares that potentially solve their problems and improve the quality of life for their community. So that was kind of what sucked me in more is on in the Zetis. 
And then uh, after living here for a while, I sort of felt that Morazon wasn't doing a good job of reaching out to Westerners, digital nomads, and similar people. Despite it being a far better jurisdiction, in my opinion, Crossboro was getting all the attention. So I thought I would uh, create a little project called Bootstrap.City to bring more attention to Morazon. So why Bootstrap.City? So I'll answer that question with another question. And that is, what is C.Morazon? C.Morazon is a Zeti. A Zeti is a very special economic zone. It has its own tax, civil law, business codes, and police force. So although it's still part of Honduras, it's effectively a private city, maybe something akin to a Hong Kong of sorts, where it's like part of China technically, but often thought of as being its own separate jurisdiction slash country. So Ciudad Morazon is similar as part of Honduras, but it has a lot of autonomy and that autonomy offers many benefits. In addition, one thing I found very attractive about Ciudad Morazon is it's next to the commercial capital of San Pedro Sula and also really near the port. So this is very helpful for uh, finding labor and being an attractive jurisdiction. Ciudad Morazon catered towards normal working class Hondurans. Bootstrap City is in an attempt to unofficially rebrand Ciudad Morazon, market the city, and make it clear that it's a place where you can bootstrap your business and your life and try a better way of living together, a new place to call home, and so much more. So what's special about bootstrap.city? I'd say there's three things that are really special about it. The first is it has a fantastic economic environment. Both the cost of living, the business regulation, taxes, everything else are highly competitive. Two, its legal environment, including its arbitration services, its very low cost of company incorporation, and fast speed of governance. And then third, it's the supportive community and government that exists in the city. Most governments are very hard to access and are not very open to innovation. They're kind of slow moving, very conservative, Byzantine bureaucracies, but Morazon doesn't have any of that. And to kind of summarize everything in one sentence, I would say it's that it has $120 rent for 60 square meters, a flat 5% territorial income tax, the ability to open a company in days for less than $100, proximity to Honduras's top commercial city and port, unrivaled economic freedom, and crypto-friendly businesses. That makes Bootstrap City the ideal place to bootstrap your business, your family, and your life. And I found that this novel quote is a famous Twitter character. And he said, if you want to live in the future, live in the freest place around. Because eventually all the innovators and creators will show up there. I think the freest place around is Bootstrap City. And I welcome all of you to come visit and live there. Good. Yeah, later we also have more time speaking about doing business in Morazan. So I'd like to now talk about the bigger context behind Morazan. 
and um, charter cities, startup cities, right? So first we have Vera Kitanova from the Three Cities Foundation. She's an economist and urban policy researcher. A funny background, she's the person in this room or among people in that space that I know by far the longest. <laughs> but the first time that Vera and I met was in 2013. Right, that was, so she's still one of the first people I followed on Twitter. 10 so years ago. And I was working at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. And Vera um, attracted a lot of attention at the time um, through the protests in Russia. Right, so she was, I think, the first uh, libertarian or organizing libertarian groups in Russia. So she was invited at the American Enterprise Institute to speak. So I'm not sure, Vera, if you remember. Of course I do. <laughs> but um, yeah, the floor is yours. So yeah, uh, good afternoon, everyone. And uh, thank you, Nicholas, for inviting me here. Indeed, I wanted to tell that story, but you were first to tell the story of how, yeah, life can take unexpected turns. We met 10 years ago and, and uh, very difficult circumstances. So, and uh, back then, 10 years ago, it was exactly when my fascination with cities started and my thinking of how cities should be run, should work. So, as you mentioned, 10 years ago, I was elected to a local municipal council, uh, becoming, yes, the first ever elected libertarian in Russia. And that was very exciting times. I was an undergrad student, a very interesting experience. And I worked as a counselor for several years. And seeing all the flaws of uh, urban planning from the inside. And at first I thought that probably that should be the, uh, f uh, the Soviet legacy. But then I started studying cities uh, academically and I started realizing that, well, to some extent, yes, that's the Soviet legacy, but generally uh, the problem is bigger than that, that cities all over the world, cities that are run publicly, conventionally, they suffer to different degrees, of course, from similar problems. And uh, last year, I finished a long journey. I completed a PhD dissertation about specifically about private cities in London at King's College. And during this uh, work, I have talked to uh, dozens of people who are involved in private cities, developers, investors, architects, designers, residents. Uh, and that's how I met a lot of uh, amazing people such as Massimo, such as Joyce. That's how I, and one of my case studies was, of course, my favorite case study was uh, the Zede uh, projects in Honduras. And another thing that helps me is my work at Zahadid Architects. We design at very large scale and including sometimes private cities from scratch or semi-private cities. So I've seen from within what it takes uh, to develop a brand new city. And finally, as Nicholas mentioned, I'm now also working with the Free Cities Foundation together with Joyce, who is with us today as well. And we support innovation and governance. Um, we all here to, in different ways, I guess, support innovation and governance. And that's because we want to give people around the world a better choice of what kind of cities they want to live, what kind of rules they want to uh, govern their lives and so on. So, and uh, my uh, presentation today would be more of a theoretical review of why we need private cities, why even those of us who are not ready, uh, like some of you, to move to a 
exotic places uh, to uh, brand new cities to build to become pioneers and build from uh, from scratch. Uh, even those of us will benefit from this movement. So uh, let's think about the last few years. Why cities need competition? Well, remember when COVID arrived, nobody knew how to live in this new normal. So deliveries would take weeks. Uh, streaming platforms like Zoom was was not working properly, and Netflix, and nobody like nobody could handle it. But uh, the next thing we knew, we know that everyone adapted. So uh, Zoom, Netflix, Amazon. Uh, they all adapted to this new reality because any crisis and COVID was a big crisis helps you to discover new ways of doing things. There's just one problem that all of us have adapted, but our government institutions, the public sector has remained the same. And the question is why? Uh, well, this, this, this wise man as often has some good answers. So Friedrich von Hayek, you all know this name, you all know this face the most famous thinker from the Austrian School of Economics, Nobel Prize winner. He said that, I quote, competition is a procedure of discovery, a procedure involved in all evolution. So if we want cities, if we want institutions to evolve, to become better, we also need them to embrace competition that private companies have. How can we do that? Can governments actually be subject to the same market incentives as private firms? Can municipalities be run as a firms? Uh, that's the question I was thinking a lot about back in my days as a, uh, as a counselor. What if governance can be privatized and to what extent? Let's turn to another Nobel winning economist. That is Ronald Coase. And my dissertation was mainly dedicated to his theory. Uh, and he was famous for his theory of the firm. So Coase asked himself, okay, if we all know that the market generally is more efficient in managing, allocating resources, uh, then why do we actually have firms which are, well, essentially the small pockets of planned economy where command and control uh, mechanisms replace this free market forces? And his answer was, because firms allow entrepreneurs to minimize transaction costs. Uh, a firm, he said, that little planned society is born when a certain number of workers get tired of spending time negotiating a deal after deal, enforcing contracts and so on. And instead, they decide to sign a long-term contract with a single employer. And the same can actually work for cities. Imagine a situation where citizens get tired of the inefficiency and corruption of their municipal government uh, they don't want to waste time uh, fighting each other over local issues, fighting with NIMBYs. What they can do, they can decide to outsource some of their decision-making powers to a private developer. And that makes a private city, uh, a city that functions like the Cozian firm, where roads are built privately, Parks and other public spaces are maintained privately. Street cleaning, traffic control, all of this is provided privately. And the developer of such a city actually has all incentives to do it as good as, uh, to, at a good quality. Because if citizens are unhappy, then they can always vote with their feet and move to another city. So the developer loses money. Imagine a full-scale market for private cities. That would be a win-win situation. It will uh, create a massive profit opportunity for entrepreneurs, 
and also a wider choice of rules for, for citizens. What kind of societies we want to live in? And on top of that, uh, we get this competition, global competition, which, as we remember from Hayek, is the driver of evolution. Uh, we accelerate, so to say, the search for better uh, ways to run cities. So in the end, that would benefit all of us, no matter if you move to a private city or stay where you are. Are there any examples of that? Well, first of all, there are many and many cases of private development on a smaller scale. I'm sure that Joyce will talk about it when talking about uh, Spencer Heath's theory. Uh, so first of all, uh, well, these are what urbanists call infield private development. Uh, you've seen it, you've all seen it in many forms. Homeownership associations where a single developer plays a role of a local government. Shopping malls where a single owner establishes rules for all tenants up to design guidelines and provides security. Hotels, resorts, which can be massive, almost the size of a city. Uh, theme parks like Disneyland and, of course, university campuses that we've, most of us have experienced at some point of our lives. But what about entire private cities? Uh, well, probably pure private cities are really hard to find. But what I call, what I call in my dissertation the semi-private cities uh, are actually quite common. Uh, you can see some examples on the screen. Uh, such cities may be privately developed but publicly governed, like Gurugram in India. It was previously called Gurgaon. Some of you have heard about that. Or publicly developed but privately governed, like Sandy Springs uh, in the U.S. Uh, they can be built as private-public partnerships, like Mazdar in the Emirates. Uh, there are even cities both developed and governed privately, like Lavasa in India. And some cities are lucky enough to get a special jurisdiction status, like the emerging cities in Honduras, the Prospera and Morazan, and they probably come as close to a pure private city as it's possible today. The big question is, why are private cities so hard to find? If it's such a win-win situation, as I showed, then where is the market for private governance? Is it simply that cities are too complex to be developed by one single profit-making entity? Or is it the regulations? Well, a little bit of both. Obviously, building a city from scratch is an incredibly hard and risky business. You have too many things to take into account. How to choose a location, how to get enough people to move to a new city, who should design it. Well, with what will be the core industries and so on and so on. But none of this is impossible. And in fact, history has seen many examples of such projects that are successful. One of my favorite examples is this one. So it's a city of Irvine in California. Population 300,000. It was launched a half a century ago by a single developer, a private corporation, the Irvine Company. and uh, a lot of it, like a large uh, share of its land still owned and managed by the same corporation. Uh, as a result, it is continuously being ranked as among the top 10 most livable, greenest, healthiest, safest, and happiest cities in the whole country. Irvine is probably the largest, but not the only city of this kind. There is a city of Reston in Virginia, 
There's Disney's celebration in Florida, and uh, there are thousands of smaller scaled examples. Imagine that half of all American population who, are, who, who live in uh, their own houses, they live in home ownership associations, which are essentially master planned residential communities. So many private cities, as we can think of them. Irvine is an inspiring case, but Irvine is still part of California with its notoriously high taxes. Alex talked before that he, tr uh, he and his uh, team, they tried to do something on a special uh, jurisdiction within the U.S. And they, dis they, like, they dis discovered that there are still very severe limitations to, the, to your experimentation, the freedom that you have. If you want more freedom, then you need a city with a, uh, with a special jurisdiction status. And developers need to either, as a developer, you need to either find a country that allows such types of, type of experiments or persuade some government to pass a legislation and make it possible. And some governments, surprisingly, are happy to do that. That may sound strange. Why would a government voluntarily give up some of its powers. That's against everything that we know about governments. Well, it's the same reason again and again, competition. They need to attract talent. They need to attract capital. Uh, they might not be ready to reform the whole country, but they don't mind sometimes carving out a certain area and creating a different legal regime there with better rules for business, lower tariffs, uh, zero tariffs, lower taxes, and so on. And uh, these come in many names. So here in the UK, we call them free ports. In China, new areas. In the US, uh, foreign trade zones. In South Korea, international business district. In Ghana and Nigeria and a range of other countries in Africa, those are prosperity zones uh, and so on. In our team at the Free Cities Foundation, we are using an umbrella term, free cities for all kinds of territories that adopt liberal policies to increase prosperity. And as you might guess, developing countries are usually much more open to such policies. Many of them don't have a choice. Like, for example, India, which I mentioned already, it's urbanizing at a crazy speed. Take a moment to think about it. Every minute, up to 30 Indians move from a rural area to a city. That's a huge number. But the Indian budget has no funds to provide urban infrastructure for all these people. And as a result, the largest slums in the world in Mumbai, the most polluted city in the world, Delhi, a lot of poverty, crime, and disease. Unfortunately. What can you do? On a private level, you can try to shield yourself from all this chaos and move to a gated community. And about 45 million Indians have already done that. But of course, this option is not for everyone. Not everyone can afford it. As a government, you can try outsourcing urban development to the private sector. And here's one example. Uh, the city called Lavasa was built entirely from scratch just in the last 10 years. Like Irvine, it was planned, built, and managed by a single private firm, Lavasa Corporation. And it's quite large. It's one-fifth of the size of Mumbai. And the developer uh, envisioned it as a beautiful, green, walkable city, like a small piece of Italy and India. Uh, 
In Lavasa, interestingly, private cities not just managed public spaces like parks and roads, provided electricity and water. They also ran schools, hospitals, other services. Uh, and what's more, mo mo many of these services were provided free of charge, which included potable water, garbage recycling, primary health care and ambulance, and even an English-speaking nursery. And who were the residents? Not just the rich expats and upper-caste Indians, as you might be thinking. So the majority were low-skilled workers. They were former villagers who sold their lands uh, to Lavasa for development. And in exchange, they got job offers from Lavasa and a chance to get out of poverty. Sounds too good to be true, right? Well, and then the NIMBYs came. You know, NIMBYs not in my backyards. Those people who protest against practically any construction anywhere. An organization called the National Alliance uh, of People's Movement, uh, a left-wing organization, obviously, launched a political campaign to shut down Lavasa. And they were rallying, they were filing petitions, and finally they managed to freeze it on environmental grounds. But what's unusual about this story is that they were counter-protests, that the local people started uh, raising their voices. They went to the courts, they went to the media saying, wait, these people, these activists, they don't represent us. They are not helping us, not defending our rights. Lavasa made our lives better and we want to defend it. We, Lavasa gave us a chance in life and made the environment better. That was one of one of the main arguments that the place became greener as a result of the development. And the online petition to save Lavasa has uh, gained uh, over 20, almost 24,000 uh, signatures. And as a result, the project was revived. The new developer was found. You can read a longer version of the story on the Free, C Free Cities uh, Foundation uh blog by myself uh but the story is obviously unfinished and then i'm moving to a story that brought us all together here uh as you know very well honduras has this unique special zones called zedes uh with low taxes zero tariffs minimal bureaucracy and effectively the the most like the highest degree of autonomy that you can currently imagine on earth and uh, I won't talk much about them because other speakers will, uh, as uh, we all know. And I will, I will only say that, well, again, we all know that just like in Lavasa, there was an uh, ideologically motivated movement that tried hard to shut down Zedes. And we know that a year ago, the Zed law was repealed by the new government. But uh, that two cities, uh, Morazan and Prospera, are moving forward against all odds. And in my mind, uh, and I have been researching this topic for many years, uh, these are the most uh, exciting private cities projects on earth right now. And uh, it's uh, for everyone who are interested in the topic, this is something to watch closely and not just watch. So Joyce, my colleague is, as I've already mentioned, is part of the Morrison team. There are other ways to contribute, even if you're not ready to move to Honduras. Like my colleagues from Zah Hadid, for example, designed these residences on Roatan for Prospera. And events like this is also another way, another chance to give, 
another is also give more people a chance to take part in making history. But back to my original question. Uh, why don't we have a market for private cities? The ultimate problem, as it uh, turns out, is not economic. We've seen many economically successful large-scale ent enterprises, large-scale developments. It's not even regulatory. regulatory. Yes, it's hard to find a gap in international law, but they are, exist and it's possible. The ultimate problem is, unfortunately, ideology. It's sort of nimbus on steroids, as I call it. We are talking about movements that block the developments of private cities, oppose private cities, just because they inherently oppose the very idea of private cities, and more generally, the idea that they can be private solutions to persistent public problems. So to unlock this opportunity to create a full functioning market for private cities, we need to reframe the whole debate. And that's where everyone, every one of us can uh, play their role. It takes time to change the narratives. So the first idea of a charter city, that's, that's the story I know from Massimo. Uh, he told it to me in an interview for my PhD dissertation. The first idea was uh, born uh, of a charter city in the Caribbean, was born sometime in the 1980s in the, on the campus of the Francisco Marroquin University, a uh, very well-known bastion of free market thinking. So it took almost 50 years before the first citizens could move into new homes in Morazan and Prospera. But this pipeline is crucial. Without the first, they won't be the second. Uh, builders need thinkers to change the intellectual environment before they can start building. And that's what each of us can do to make private cities uh, possible, even if we're not engineers or venture capitalists. And by the way, uh, if you look at the photo, the, the guy in the middle is not just some random builder. This is Gabriel Delgado an entrepreneur from Guatemala and one of the earliest investors in Honduran charter cities and the grandson of the first president of the Francisco Marroquin University. So uh, he, his example shows you that sometimes you have to do both, push ideas forward, but also occasionally supervise a construction site. I will finish my uh, talk with a quote, uh, Tyler Cohen head of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Some of you are probably reading his blog, The Marginal Revolution. He sees uh, private cities as part of a growing trend and a very important trend. Instead of emphasizing the failures of current system, libertarian energies are now focused on the possibilities of entirely new ones. So for him, private cities and blockchain are the two hottest ideas that libertarians should focus on. The goal, he says, is not that the cities would reflect libertarian doctrine in every way, but rather that they would be an improvement over prevailing governance. So we need to talk more about cases like Morazan and Lavasa, where uh, common people can get a job and a chance to improve their lives and their family lives. Uh, cases like Irvine, one of the happiest cities in America, uh, about the new generation of private cities in Africa, in Kenya, Nigeria, Zambia, Ghana, and other countries that are built right now as public-private partnerships. The demand for private cities are growing for private governance, growing both in the developed and the developing world. But obviously, it's the developing world that will benefit most. And uh, so that's what we are all doing here, reframing the debate. 
the movement is growing. There are architects uh, who are designing these free cities, economists like myself who analyze what works and what doesn't, policy consultants who help developer choose the right host country and negotiate with its government. Uh, once a year in October, we hold this big conference called Liberty in Our Lifetime, where all these people can get together and exchange our, their ideas, where an investor from California can team up with a developer from Honduras and an architect from Germany and come up with an idea of a brand new city. So the next one takes place in Prague uh, in October. You can already get the tickets on uh, free-cities.org. And... As I said, the beauty of free cities, of private cities, is that you benefit from them even if you don't want to move anywhere, even if you are perfectly happy living where you are now, uh, such as London or New York, uh, because more experiments means uh, more competition, better choice, and uh, a faster evolution. Uh, and private cities act as laboratories to test drive new rules, new ways of living peacefully together. And if something works greater in the lab, it can be taken out and replicated in sort of the real life environment. So everything that happens in places like Morasan matters uh, way beyond Morasan. Thank you. Thank you so much, Vera. That was so inspiring. And I really love how you were framing this really as a bigger movement, right? So, and you're totally right. That, um, that inspires like builders to join the movement. Now there's actually things to build, not just, you know, we can stop just arguing about things. Now we actually have the zero to ones have been created, right? And we can uh, already work there, build it. And even if we're not there, we can even help remotely by connecting with the larger movement, right? And building a community around it that is talking about it, that is supporting it, that is helping get more funding that is hoping to gain more awareness for the space. So I think we're on a really, really great trajectory, not least also through your work and through the Free Cities Foundation. Before we go into questions, I would like to hand it over to Jorge Colindres. Colindres yeah. is here next to me, but he's a good friend of mine. And he's been very intimately involved with the developments around the ZD laws in Honduras. He's now the major of Prosper, and I would like to take this opportunity to talk about the background of ZEDES in Honduras, what makes them so special, what makes the legal framework so interesting, and where are we at right now, and what can we expect in the future? Perfect. Thank you, Nicholas, and uh, happy to see all of you here. Um, yes, I'm visiting Morasan. This is my first time I'm visiting. Sorry, Massimo, I should have come uh, earlier, but it's a beautiful place. I'm enjoying the uh, enjoying it uh, quite a lot. Um, but yes, I, I became involved in the, the Honduran Charter Cities uh, movement uh, almost uh, 10 years ago, perhaps. And, uh, you know, the my initial role was to study the regime and try to uh, get it into uh, an operational phase. Uh, which was which was very hard, you know the the uh, the camp, uh, the committee for the adoption of best practices that was in charge of, of processing uh, the requests uh, to invest in the state regime. They had no budget. They were you know disorganized, and uh, so that there was a challenge from that point. Then uh, uh, getting access to information for investors that was another uh, 
area which you know in the early stages that was very important then understanding the settle law itself you know it's a very short law uh, for for all of its uh, impact and for all that it encompasses uh, i believe it's uh, around 45 articles and uh, so going through what each of these articles means and i remember the early stage there was a lot of concern uh, about the technical secretary which uh, which is like, like the governor of the, of the cities eh, because the law gave or apparently gave uh, eh, the technical secretary a lot of power. And uh, so even if you could create uh, a new autonomous local government under the set regime, then uh, it would seem that a lot of power was concentrated on the, on the technical secretary. And so that was one of the uh, initial challenges that a lot of the uh, you know investors and, and thinkers and you know, developers were uh, where we're, we're going through. In, in I think a lot of my 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 studies focused on that part, you know, on interpreting the law. One of one one of my main or I think most uh, most important contributions to to the understanding of uh, the set of framework, uh, particularly in in the domestic in the domestic uh, sphere here in Honduras, it was. Uh, Explaining the nature of the city as a local political subdivision of the state of Honduras, you know, here in in, uh, in the country because of the media and because of the criticism and frankly because of a, a poor poor understanding and and, and studies of the city regime, uh, to this day, uh, the prevailing uh, notion is that uh, it is a part of uh, it is a part of the country. Uh, that is given away to uh, private enterprise control, uh, you know, and and and, and, the, and in the public imagination, it's a, it's a foreign company, and uh, definitely a private enterprise has a, a lot, a lot of say, and has a lot, a lot of uh, uh, control and influence. This is because the regime allows it, but it's not it's not a, a full autonomy. It's not a, a complete power, and the the main uh, state functions uh, at, at, to create, for example, a, you know the the regulatory or legal basis upon which uh, private enterprise is going to to to, to work that still retained uh, by the state through the city itself, which is a, a public you know it's an organization of of public law with a public authority, a, the technical secretary. I'm the technical secretary. I was uh, appointed by the government of Honduras. Uh, yes, I was proposed by the developers to the government of Honduras, but it was the government that proposed me. And uh, and then one of the uh, key elements that I always are uh, in favor of when designing the city is that uh, the residents have to have a, a lot of say. You know, they have to have a lot of power over their governments. Uh, of course, just by the nature itself. They come in, they sign an agreement, they agree to the terms and conditions. So just from that stage, it, you know, it's it's more than anything they've done uh, before, you know, here in here in Honduras. But uh, I always argue that they, uh, the cities have to be compliant with uh, international law. International law includes the uh, uh, American Convention on Human Rights and a series of other uh, minimum democratic standards. 
uh, which in Prosper we have uh, uh, focused in, in enabling and empowering uh, Prosper residents with more democratic uh, mechanisms to participate in the local government than those they have ever enjoyed uh, before. And uh, this, uh, uh, this way of, uh, of uh, wrapping the set of regime and explaining it, at least hearing to the local populace, it's been, it's been very helpful. And, and I think it's been, uh, I've made uh, you know, a lot of progress in, in defending the, the institutionality. Because uh, you know, I'm a Honduran, I'm, I was born in Honduras. Uh, I I am independent. I uh, from, from the private developers uh, investing in prosperous city. I I'm in charge of auditing the companies. I'm in charge of uh, you know applying the law. So I, I think the mechanism works uh, in that sense. And uh, another key key part to to, to this framework, uh, of course, uh, have been the discussions about sovereignty. Right, partly because of the simplistic notion that it's just a piece of land that you give to a foreign company, so that that's the main driver of concerns about sovereignty. What I've argued to 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 thinkers, to you know, to the public, I'm constantly in the media in Honduras trying to to argue in favor of the settler regime, is that. I, you know, personally, I've never felt more sovereign in my life, you know, before, you know, before the Seder regime, because it, it, essentially what you have with the Seder regime is a massive decentralization of uh, state power. And uh, where does it decentralize to, right? It decentralizes to us, to me as regular Honduran citizen. Uh, Ten years ago, I saw a piece of uh, uh, paper in the constitution, in the laws. And the laws were telling me, hey, Jorge, now you can create a new local government with different set of rules that are more, uh, you know, attractive to, to capital, that are more conducive to economic growth, that are more conducive to, 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 to human flourishing. So literally, I, the National Congress of Honduras, you know, they sent me a piece of paper, I publishing it in, like I said, I'm a, I'm a student in law school, I receive a piece of paper, tell Jorge, now you can create a new government and, and, and you know, and, and, and coordinate with foreign investors, national investors, people here in Honduras. It was great. Like, that's an exercise of sovereignty. What, what's, what's a greater exercise of sovereignty than being able to say, mm, well, you know, this system doesn't really work. Let me try something else with, a, with this group of people, right? That's where, where, where we started the selling the idea. There were many challenges and I'll get to the to the current challenges but one of the initial challenges it was uh, conserva conservatism in local businesses and uh, local business uh, elites very conservative and I remember the initial debates even with the uh, with the maquila sector you know with the manufacturing sector I, I used to go to the maquila association and you know, the, you know this is great we can create a, all these types of new rules and we can create a new local government and we can you know become like the most attractive uh, destination for investment in, in in the region and we can take a leading role and i remember that uh, part of the opposition was businessmen wanting to fund uh, another government like they were angry, like, what do you mean I have to 
to, to create a, a new tax administration? Or what do you mean I have to figure out the laws? Like this all should be given to me. Like the government, the government should, should figure it out. Uh, so it was, it was tough. It was tough to, to sell it. Um, of course, everything gets politicized. And, uh, and so even some of the main business associations opposed it. Uh, so it was, it was a tough sell. Uh, but in any case, you know, there were three business groups, which I consider very visionary that went through uh, this process and stood to it to the end that, you know, they formed the three operating cities, uh, Prosper and Morrison and, and Norquidia. And, um, you know, these triggered much more interest when by, from, from various parties in national, international, even, you know, it, it's just by, by having the first three status starting operations, it really, all the conservatism, all the, all, all the doubts, all the confusion, it went away because they would say, if these guys did it, then we want to, then we also want to do it. And, uh, camp had like somewhere around like 25, uh, applications for new, for new cities all, all across the country. It, of course, in parallel, this was with the, with the national you know, political difficulties. So, so in the end, all, all these other projects, uh, uh you know, they, they couldn't move forward, but so we had gotten to, to, to that stage and, and I was getting calls from all sorts of, uh, this is 20, 2020, 20 and 2021. And getting calls from all sorts of uh, uh, businessmen here in Honduras from all across the country wanted to to join the Seda regime, wanted to, uh, you know, to create a different city. Uh, so, so yeah, the city, city is, uh, we're booming in 2020, 2021. Uh, and then, of course, you know, part of the, the issue and, and, and the exit, part of the, the reason for the existence of cities is a, you know, lack of basic institutionality at the national government. And so, you know, we had a previous administration who, you know, through the past 12 years had concentrated power and the government became very autocratic. Businessmen violated due process rights. It was terrible, but it was, uh, it was slow. It was uh, moving slowly, but surely uh, degrading the national, the national system, the national economy, uh, creating, uh, you know, a stronger authoritarian regime. And this, uh, this generated, you know, political stability in the country. And uh, this entices the Honduran population to make it their mission to do whatever we can to get these people out of power, right? We, you know, we need to get these people out of power. And um, attacking the cities was a big part of it. Uh, I mean, I was an opponent, a public opponent uh, of uh, the previous government. And I even debated with, with uh, some of the people who are on camp, which is the city committee. I, I, I even, even involved with this whole city thing, I would, I would like, you know, debate and, and, and attack their policies publicly. And fortunately, they, they never took it personally, I think. It, they did try to get me fired three times, but even I thought that was like my old, my old retaliation. Any, anyways, this situation, the, the Honduran minds, the collective is not, uh, it's not socialist. 
you know, this is the Honduran, I believe that the Honduran collective thinking it has not been poisoned by, you know, this envy, resentment, and, 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 and want to do the socialist uh, model. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, definitely they did want to remove the regime. And so they voted one of the most, you know, radical groups into power. This is, uh, you know, the new government is openly, uh, you know, in favor of the worst uh, dictatorships in Latin America, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela. Uh, they've been uh, hinting support uh, to Russia, you know, the, the President Xiomara Castro, in her last address to to Congress, I believe it was... Uh, last year or earlier this year, but she, a lot of her references were attacking the West for supporting her. She, she, she wasn't blunt. She was very diplomatic, but she was attacking the West for supporting Ukraine. Now, essentially, we're in a, in a new context in which uh, this radical government is not only seeking to expropriate cities, but they're seeking to expropriate everyone, essentially. Uh, you know, they're seeking to expropriate energy companies. They're seeking to expropriate uh, investors in city. They're seeking to, uh, you know, they're fostering, you know, the, the presidential family is, is fostering personally uh, land invasions. It's, uh, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of hectares uh, have been invaded. And, uh, and this is led, you know, by, by, by the government and, and pushed forward by the government. And there's no response. And when the judiciary tries to respond, the executive intervenes, and the, now the government is pushing a, a new tax reform that aims to delete all existing special tax regimes in Honduras. And uh, even though the situation, of course, looks dire because of this behavior, I'm actually more optimistic than ever because where the Honduran public is becoming convinced that really it was a mistake. Sometimes you tend to think that you're at your worst and that things cannot get worse. And and this government is showing that, you know, no, no, doesn't matter how bad the situation is, you know, the abyss has no bottom. Right? You can always <laughs> go worse. So so that's what they're showing. I think that uh, this has united, you know, uh, civil society has united the private sector. And uh, so so I, I think this is creates a, a good this is a good uh, situation or or you know good opportunity for us to be able to essentially as uh, speaking as as Andres, for us to be able to get rid of this government and get another one and uh, for this new government to be you know more respectful of uh, uh, you know private property and and the cities and and to kill that division that was existing between those in the city regime and those in the tourism regime and those in in the, the Maquila regime, I think now everyone's united. Uh, of course, legally, we're guaranteed for 50 years. So we're, we're right now we're permanent. So right now, status are permanent under the Honduran legal system. Uh, they have not been fully repealed. You know, you go, you buy a Honduran constitution, status are still there. So status are still in the constitution. Uh, they haven't ratified the, the repeal. They could ratify it or not, but to this day, they haven't ratified it, so it's permanent. If they were to ratify it, then we would still uh, 
you know, be locked in for a period of 50 years. It's prosperous. We intend to move forward. Uh, despite all these challenges, we have continued to bring in uh, uh, investments. Uh, last year, we grew from 58 acres to over 1,000 acres. Uh, we're in, in June, we're, we're, we're finishing you know, the construction of the tallest, the highest tower uh, in the Bay Island Department. Uh, there's uh, you know, a bank that's uh, it's operating now on, on Prospera City. You know, it's a Bitcoin exchange. There's uh, companies doing service exports. Uh, there's hotel, restaurants, uh, resorts. Uh, you know, there's industrial uh, site planning, La Ceiba. And there's another development uh, in Port Royals. We're moving forward. Uh, I'm confident. You know, I've been uh, living on Earth all my life. And I, I, I feel confident that in general now, under the new situation where, where civil society and private sector even with the cities are, are more united. Uh, I'm very confident that we're going to be able to get a, a more reasonable uh, national government in the next couple of years. And that's, uh, you know, they're going to to respect or we're going to make them respect our rights because yes, usually I'm, a, I'm an attorney, so usually rights, you have to make them be respected. It's not, it's not something you can usually expect. You know, I'm very optimistic, very happy. All these reforms are not affecting us uh, because we're exempt from all these crazy socialist reforms they're doing at the national level. So that's also proving a point to the other businessmen, to our private sector. So that's that's my message. Thank you. Very happy to be here in Morrisville. So thank you for organizing this event. I'm very very confident, optimistic that we're gonna pulls through and I actually do want to create more setups. So I'm pretty sure we'll look forward to in getting that enabled again. Awesome. Thank you, Thank you Jorge. Yeah, my question to you is, so you described the global situation really well and um, so that we're now at a very good and important trajectory. What do you think we need most right now as a movement? What else do we need to just grow more and faster? Uh, well, I think that we, that uh, well, you or we, I don't know if I if I can consider myself part of part of the movement because I really uh, emotionally I'm very much invested in what's happening in Honduras. Uh, so I think we should tell more human stories. I think that uh, what I what we see in other cases, like when these uh, types of projects get disrupted, it's because the opponents uh, manage to frame them as something that. Well, you know, you know that the way they frame it, it's it's a, it's an for it's for the rich, it's for the expats, it's exploiting, it's neocolonialism, it's exploitation. So we need to show how uh, actual lives of actual people on the ground get better. Uh, we need to show their faces. We need to show to tell their stories. We need to give them voice to tell their stories, like not us telling other people's stories, but uh, talk to uh, like. I don't know, make make a documentary movie. So we hope to do it at the Free Cities uh, Foundation. That's uh, that's on our list of things that we want to do is we want to make a documentary or at least a podcast about things like that. So this is what worked in Lavasa, the Indian project that I showed that people started, local people started going to the media and telling their stories. That's definitely one of the most important things. And the other way, and the other thing is, as you see, that 
a lot of, you know, interest is growing towards projects like that to fi finding ways for people to get involved, even if they do, are not ready to move, if they not, uh, don't have funds to invest, if they are not, I don't know, legal advisors to, so find, uh, ways for people with very different expertise, with very different backgrounds to somehow get involved. Right. Thanks, Vera. Um, next question is for Kog. Um, so why do you think the GOH has not yet ratified the votes to repeal the ZD law? Play politics, you know, it's, it's part of, for all the parties, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a nice item to have, you know, whether to defend it or to attack it. So, and it's also a trading chip for them. So there are multiple. Uh, things going on, you know, there's a recent Supreme Court election and now there's this tax report and then uh, they have to select the new attorney general, then uh, a couple of other authorities have to be selected. So it's a good, uh, it's a good trading chip. And so apparently it's still not, uh, you know, hasn't been uh, negotiated or, or drafted by, by, by each of the main parties. So. What do you think ZS or what do you think you need most in Honduras to create more ZS? What will be the, the supports that the community, people who are in this call wondering how can we help, what can they be? Personally, I think that the financial uh, services and financial system is key because uh, the financial system, uh, you know, the government can control, you know, a lot of things, right? So in control in a way that is contrary to the law. And so, so I think that if the status were able to have a, a financial system that is highly independent from that financial system of the, of the national regime of Honduras, then I think that's it. Once you have a, we already have the autonomy legal and everything. Once you have an autonomous financial system, then we can create wealth and, and do commerce and trade and, <laughs> and move forward. Fantastic. There were a couple of other questions around business advantages across service Morrison. I'd suggest we do that um, a bit later, right? Because we have a full session on Morrison. That's the main focus of this webinar conference. We'll talk more about Prospera in, in other webinars as well, right? Just so you know, you'll look at questions around that and about Morrison will be answered later for sure. Excellent weather in Morrison, it seems. Is it always that way or does it rain? It's good to be inside. Well climatized. There's freedom in the air. You mean humidity? Freedom and humidity. That's the weather in Morrison. Great. So let's continue. I'd like to give the floor to Massimo Massone, the founder of Ciudad Morrison. Very excited about this presentation. Take as much time as you like, Massimo. We're really excited to hear about your backgrounds and the founding ideas and vision behind Morasan and how you got to do it. So, and we'll have really plenty of time for Q&A after. So Massimo, the stage is yours. Thank you, Nicholas. And uh, thank you everybody, Alex, Joyce, uh, Vera to participate uh, and everybody else that is here uh, online. Uh, thanks for your interest in our experiment. I am Italian, but I've been living in uh, Central America for 25 years. I am an entrepreneur 
And uh, when uh, the Zeta legislation was uh, promulgated, I'm also libertarian. So I saw it as a possibility of uh, showing not only Honduras, not only improve the situation of Honduras, but also to show the world that uh, there is a possibility of providing uh, uh, public services, uh, not in economic sense, uh, but in a political sense, uh, things like uh, education, uh, security, uh, basic uh, utilities, and so on. Uh, there is the possibility of providing uh, uh, from, from uh, privates instead of th than through taxes. And... Um, and I think that this is uh, not only better in terms of quality, but also much more efficient. For example, in Ciudad Morasan, the only tax we have, it's a 5% on income. We do not have any other taxes like property taxes or, uh, uh, I don't know, sales taxes, uh, value added taxes, uh, import taxes, uh, import duties, and so on. So with 5%, uh, we believe uh, we can provide the same type of services uh, that in Western countries usually absorb between 40 and 60% of the GDP. This is uh, one order of magnitude of difference. Now, this might seem strange, but the reality is that uh, in the US, for example, at the end of the 19th century, when uh, Grover Cleveland was president, uh, the taxation at the federal level was only 3.5%. So it's, it's, it's doable. Sure, we have something more to do, like, for example, school, that is, not, is, is still not a federal responsibility, but I am more than sure that with 5%, we can do it. So, Ciudad Morasan is the second city that opened after Prospera. Physically, it's 45 hectares, about 110 uh, acres and uh, um, we have invested uh, till now 12 million dollars we wanted to invest uh, 150 150 150 million dollars uh, to create uh, the, the current uh, um, the current plan if uh, they allow to do it and we finish uh, this first phase of the city this first uh, 150 million will allow to build a city for uh, 15,000 residents with 100,000 square meter of uh, industrial space, uh, about uh, 50,000 meter of, of uh, office space, uh, commercial space, uh, and uh, also all the other uh, uh, buildings uh, and uh, institution that makes a city, like for example, uh, parks, uh, a stadium, uh, churches uh, and um, and so on so a, a, a complete city um, that we will build a little bit at the time uh, following the leads uh, of our residents um, possibly to describe uh, in the best way uh, Ciudad Morasan uh, the best way is to, to, to compare it to Prospera, which is the most famous of the Zede and also probably the most advanced. In this case, I don't want to appear as a, as a cri cri critical of Prospera. I am actually a small investor in Prospera, a very small investor. 
And uh, many of my friends uh, are involved in Prospera, like Jorge and uh, Gabriel Delgato that uh, Vera mentioned, and many others. So I absolutely admire what they are doing in Rotan, but there are some differences. Basically, they are, uh, the main differences uh, uh, are two. The first, uh, we are completely um, created for the economic needs uh, of Choloma where we stand. The Choloma is the third city of Honduras. It's a city of 300,000 people and is the center of the Maquila. The Maquila is the, the light the manufacturing uh, industry dedicated to the export. It's very uh, labor intensive, very little capital intensive. And it's uh, basically what uh, Despectively, it's called a sweatshop uh, by, by many people. I don't have anything against sweatshops. I believe that sweatshops are a necessary stepping stone for any, any country to become rich. Uh, working in Maquila is much better than uh, supper uh, anger uh, in, in the countryside in uh, subsistence uh, agriculture for example, and uh, give an alternative uh, to immigrate uh, uh, illegally to the United States. So um, Choloma is a Maquilla city. When I arrived in Honduras uh, uh, 25 years ago, it was a 40,000, 50,000 people uh, city. Now it's 300,000. So people come uh, regularly to Choloma, a little bit like uh, when you read uh, Steinbach, uh, they were going... Uh, from uh, the Dust Bowl uh, down to California. So, so people come from the interior of Honduras every day looking for job and they find job because uh, it's, it's thriving uh, the, the, the city, a lot of in, uh, investments, uh, but um, the environment, uh, the environment is very, it's very bad. From an environmental point of view, you see open sewage uh, almost everywhere. The roads are all full. Uh, Criminality, it's, uh, it's, it's the most dangerous place in Honduras, which is one of the most dangerous country in the world. Uh, so uh, the, the environment is awful. And what we want to do with the, with the Zede is to offer uh, a, a place with dignity for the people working uh, for Maquila, which makes uh, typically between 400 and 450 dollars uh, per month. So, for example, as uh, Alex said, uh, we rent the houses uh, $120 uh, per month. Uh, um, and uh, also the industrial part that we briefly saw, you briefly saw, uh, it's, it's basic uh, standard uh, industrial, uh, industrial construction uh, of the area. Um, so, it, 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 the first difference with, uh, with Prospera is that uh, we, we, are, we do not exclude, we actually like it very much, innovation, but uh, we are not built uh, on creating innovation. For example, if somebody wants to open a bank in, in uh, Morasal, please uh, go ahead, come, and uh, we'll try to make uh, your life as possible, but it's not... Uh, uh, the main objective, like it is for Prospera, to create uh, uh, the best place in the world to 
create a, to, 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 to create a new financial uh, institutions. Or oh, we are not going uh, to be a center of uh, innovation uh, for uh, uh, surgery or uh, drug um, discovery. We, we might want to do it. I mean, it can happen if our resident wants to do it, we are open to it. But it's not the main objective. The main objective is to give a life with dignity to the 300,000 people living in Cholon. Uh, this is uh, the, the, the first uh, big difference uh, and it comes uh, from, uh, I think from libertarianism in, in general, I, I believe most of us uh, believe uh, that uh, liberty, meaning lower taxes, uh, private services, uh, less regulation, improve uh, the economy of uh, everybody. In San Francisco, a, a, I, I, I believe that a software engineer that now made $200,000 or $300,000 per year in a better, more free environment, he could make, I don't know, $500,000 instead of $300,000. But where liberty has the most impact is on poor people. And you can see it uh, with uh, Honduranian that goes uh, to the US. The, the GDP per capita in Honduras is $2,500, which is about $200 per month. And when they arrive uh, uh, to the US, uh, they easily make $2,000. So it's 10 times more. It's not uh, double it because a better environment, the best benefit, the most, uh, the people that most uh, um, receive benefits from liberty are the poor people, not the rich people. So the opportunity, I believe, uh, is great uh, in place is, uh, that are uh, frankly pretty desperate as it is life in Choloma now. So this is the first difference. The second difference is uh, institutional. Uh, uh, Prospera is uh, like uh, almost every city in the world, uh, it's a subdivision. It's a proprietary community, means that it's owned by private, but uh, uh, it's owned by many, many uh, private people that buys, uh, for example, uh, uh, a flat uh, or um, a building uh, to, to, uh, to create a business uh, or so. We are not, we are an entrecom, which is uh, an entrepreneurial community. Joyce will talk uh, much more about that. But uh, the difference uh, of an entrecom is that uh, there is uh, only a single owner. We don't sell uh, any part of, of uh, Morasan, we only rent. And um, this is a difference that awful, often is... Uh, not considered uh, enough, but I do believe that in terms of uh, managing real estate, uh, an intercom has uh, a lot of advantage uh, compared to a subdivision. The first uh, and, and most important uh, is that uh, the objective uh, of the decisor, uh, which is the owner, uh, are completely aligned uh, the objective uh, of his clients. Because, for example, when I decide to put uh, a toboggan or a picnic table in the park, I do it if I believe that my cost is smaller than the improving life that I give the residents 
because in this case, uh, I will be able in the long term uh, to increase the rent. So basically, uh, just in uh, any other business, uh, like Mises said, uh, the entrepreneur is not the captain of the, of the boat. The captain of the boat are the client, the customers. We are the ends money. So we receive from our client uh, direction where we have to go. And we just move the boat because we are the expert in knowing how to move the boat. And, uh, and this is a big uh, difference because, for example, eliminate the need uh, to have uh, representative democracy. Um, of course, uh, there is democracy mandated by law. According to the ZEDE, we will follow the law. But uh, think about that. Sudamo uh, uh, is like a mall, much bigger mall, but it's like a mall. So if uh, I am uh, a shop owner and I decided to rent a space in a mall, I will uh, ask for the contract. I will ask for the rent. I will see how many people visit the mall uh, every day. And then I decide if I want to open the shop there or somewhere else. Once I'm there, uh, I, I'm not supposed to vote, uh, for example, once per year to decide to bring down uh, uh, the rent uh, or increase uh, the level of security or uh, things like that. The, the relationship, uh, it's a market relationship. It's not a political relationship uh, with coercion. Uh, um, the freedom, in this sense, uh, it's democracy. If the owner of the shop decided that, that, that he doesn't like the way the mall is managed, he can simply walk away going somewhere else. So really, uh, democracy is not needed. Of course, uh, an intelligent uh, entrepreneur asks for interview continuously, look at how the client works to find the, the best way to satisfy them but then decide uh, himself. Now, this is uh, extremely important and it's, it's also opened the way for people uh, accusing us uh, of, uh, for example, uh, dividing uh, imaginal world of uh, Entrecom, where you, you can shop around the governance uh, just like you shop around the shampoo. So you decide to live in a place instead of in the other, uh, depending uh, on the condition and how much you have to pay. And uh, the collectivist in general, not only from the left, but also from the right, uh, accuse that we want to, to go back to a world uh, like before the Enlightenment, uh, uh, in which the world was divided by a class of uh, rulers and a class of uh, ruled. They accuse us of being uh, wanting to go back uh, to feudalism. What they forget is that the, the main characteristic of feudalism was that the people, the peasants, were serfs. Uh, they were linked to the land. They were not slaves, technically, but they could not leave the place they were born. They had to stay there. Of course, this does apply to uh, to a situation in which there are uh, many entrecom uh, in competition. 
So uh, this is a, a huge difference because when you can uh, walk away and or, or simply going to your uh, landlord to say, look, I just uh, received an offer from uh, the other guy in front and they charge me $110 instead of 120 Why should I stay here? I have to act. I have to provide a better service or to bring down uh, the, the, the price. It is competition, especially between uh, uh, for-profit entrecoms, uh, is uh, what uh, makes uh, any product in marketplace uh, better and cheaper every year. Uh, the state, uh, based on coercion and tax, uh, simply doesn't have any incentive to improve the service or, or decrease the price. Uh, while in a world where private uh, public services are provided by, and governance in general is provided by, by private, the profit motive uh, reintroduce that algorithm that uh, improved the life in nature, in society, which is competition, that it's uh, not existent now in the, in the industry of uh, governance. So I think these are the two uh, in, ter uh, in terms of the future, uh, we see, uh, of course, we are now in this impasse. Technically, uh, as Jorge said, uh, we are uh, grandfathered. Uh, so in the new situation, so for 50 years, uh, they, uh, they should uh, leave us alone. And if, if we are allowed to, to leave uh, for 50 years, uh, we would create uh, such a beautiful things uh, that then... Uh, much earlier than the 50 years, they will reintroduce uh, the DRC anyway. Unfortunately, all the rhetoric of the government is to say that they don't want to, to follow their own obligation, which is uh, to respect uh, the acquired uh, rights. Uh, and they are, uh, um, they are uh, treating us uh, with uh, expropriation. Um, in general, I tend to be optimist in the medium term and not in the short term. I believe that uh, the legal defense of the Zede are very solid. I'm sure Prospera will win the arbitration procedure that opened uh, at the SIADX in, in Washington. And... Uh, uh, I am skeptical that this uh, government uh, will accept it with uh, its word uh, and to find an agreement with us. I hope so, but I am skeptical. But I believe uh, that um, once uh, they are condemned, uh, the next government uh, will have a strong incentive uh, to find uh, an agreement, an agreement in which uh, possibly some... Uh, rule uh, will be changed, uh, but at least for us, uh, we don't need much. We need just uh, that the people living in the, in the Zede do not pay taxes uh, to the government. And, and the, uh, rightly so, because we provide uh, the public service. So, so uh, there is no reason for them to pay uh, public services. It would be okay, for example, if they um, charge me taxes like a normal company and I have to pay 30% of uh, my, the, the, the 
the, the profit of the sale of, of, of the private company that owns the land of the sale and the building of the sale, I would not have any problem with that. But it's, uh, it's very difficult to ask uh, to blue collar workers that already pay taxes for public school uh, and, and, and uh, police and work and roads that don't work and so to pay again for the through the taxes in Morasan or through the rent to pay for the public services that they receive in in the Zede. So um, I am optimist because uh, we're not very far. I mean we, we don't need a a lot of autonomy, like for example, Prospera need. Uh, we we just need uh, uh, the current uh, Makila uh, law, which in Honduras is called Zoli, with the possibility for private people and family to live inside. And only if you live inside and work inside, uh, you will pay only the five percent to us, and then we we can pay the. I can pay the entire 5% to the government. I don't care. And because our revenue model is on rents, it's not on, uh, on taxes. So I think that there is the possibility of an agreement. I think there is a, a possibility of an agreement even for Prospera. And uh, so I am uh, pretty optimist. Thank you so much, Massimo. That was so inspiring to hear um, the story. Also, I think it was very helpful to see the difference with Prospera that gave us a very good insight into what Marasan is. I have one question. Everyone else, feel free to post questions in the chat. But our friend Zach Caceres from the Startup City blog, he said that you, with Marasan, you did um, research with customers. So you talked to people in Shaloma and asked them what you need. Can you talk a bit about that and how you did it and what you learned from that? Yeah, actually, we uh, we ask uh, people in the Marron Institute of the New York uh, University. Marron Institute is basically the sandbox of uh, Paul Romer and uh, has great people inside. Probably the most uh, person I most admire is Alain Berthaud. It's a great libertarian um, urbanist. And uh, so we, we, we did uh, the design uh, of... Uh, Sudan Morasan uh, with people working uh, with Alain, particularly Patrick, Patrick Lee, to remember the, the last name, and, uh, and uh, his wife uh, and other, uh, other people um, of, of uh, the institute. And they have this, uh, they, they work with uh, Alain, uh, so they understand that the city is mostly the reason of a city is that because a city is a market for labor where people go to find a job and then they use the city in a way that you cannot even imagine at the beginning. Uh, it's, it's like Alex Ferguson, uh, the famous uh, enlightenment uh, uh, thinker said, uh, uh, he said it about society, but it's absolutely true about city. A city is... Is the proper is the product of human action, but not of human design. So uh, with them, we started uh, with uh, understanding uh, uh, 
who our clients are, for example, how many other cars to, to understand how many parking we need, how much they make, how much they spend in transport to go to work and, and a lot of other variables. And we started to build, uh, to build the houses based on those uh, fines. And uh, Patrick was instrumental in helping us to do that. Uh, but the, in reality, our plan uh, is just that, the plan. Then uh, we see how they use the, 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 the product, the real estate, uh, to improve as much as we can the offer for them. For, just to give an example, we saw that uh, they tend uh, in some cases, uh, they rent an house of 60 square meter, and then they arrive to live uh, in four or even six people inside, um, not family member, but people that join together to spend less. So this give us uh, the opportunity to probably to build uh, uh, housing for workers uh, with a small, uh, like I, when I was in I'm, I'm old, so I was in the Cold War and uh, I was in the military service. So they, they, they put us in this big uh, room, uh, 50 of us, uh, each, us each, each of us had uh, a, a cupboard and uh, basically we were in bank uh, three, three level of banking. So with probably 25 square meter, we were living 50 of us. And uh, so maybe in the future we can build uh, something like that and rent uh, at, uh, I don't know, $25 per month. And uh, maybe this, this works. On the other uh, uh, side, uh, one of the characteristics of, uh, of uh, let's say this, the, possibly the only safe place in uh, Choloma because uh, security is private. And uh, usually the owner of the Maquillas uh, live uh, in uh, San Pedro Sula and they commute every day. It takes 40, 50 minutes to go there and to come back. San Pedro Sula is the big city. Nobody lives in Chiloma because there are no schools for the kids and uh, it's pretty dangerous and it's pretty awful actually. So maybe we can build a uh, uh, high rise uh, uh, much more luxurious uh, or even uh, a nice villas uh, and uh, also to um, to provide uh, a, a product uh, for a much more expensive uh, uh, segment of our clients. We have to see. We have to see what, uh, what they want and how we use uh, the product uh, and adapt uh, continuously. Great. And then a question I heard the other day from someone in a Telegram chat was, how is it possible to build housing and make it so cheap? Well, housing is very labor intensive. So the cost of labor, of course, here is cheaper. Um, and then it's very regulatory dependent. Um, so of course the cost of regulation is zero in this case, because we do the regulations. Um, so our house, the full cost without the land, it's about $18,000 for 60 square meter. We use a technology that probably is different than traditional technology, but it's not a big difference, maybe a 10% saving on, on the full cost. 
The reality is that, uh, as I said, the cost of labor is lower, the cost of regulation is uh, zero, and most importantly, is the cost of the land. I mean, if you buy in New York, uh, you spend uh, $30,000 per square meter, at least half of it uh, is the cost uh, of the land uh, inside New York. I mean, it's the cost of the lot uh, with the possibility of building on top of it. This uh, uh, position of rent, uh, we do not have it because we bought a piece of land uh, in the outskirts uh, of Choloma uh, that used to be agricultural land. So we bought the agricultural price. Our cost was $5 per square meter. So it's, it's pretty cheap. And uh, of course, if we are uh, successful, uh, the value of the land uh, will be much higher, but because uh, we provide those value because we provide a nice place. People will come there and uh, there will be externalities. Uh, I mean, they will become a, a market for labor. And so the cost of the land uh, will increase uh, and we will internalize uh, not through selling the land, uh, that is not our model, but through increasing a little bit uh, the rent. Uh, now, Many people will tell us, uh, ah, so you want to, how do you say in English, you want to gentrify your place. Uh, you are uh, now giving uh, houses for $120, but at the end, uh, you will rent a $2,000 for uh, rich Honduran and foreigners. And this is one of the great things of the Zede. The Zede can expand. So, for example, the entrance of the Zede now uh, is where uh, you saw Alex, uh, and these are cheap housing, uh, housing with dignity, but uh, they are cheap. Possibly, if we work well, uh, in four years, uh, this will become uh, the central business district, uh, not only of Choloma, but possibly of the entire Valle de Sula. So there uh, we want, uh, we will want uh, to build, uh, I don't know, a rise of uh, 20 floors, uh, to give uh, space uh, for people like uh, Pricewaterhouse uh, or, or company like that. In that case, uh, the, the model of the Entrecom uh, allows you uh, flexibility in the use of real estate uh, that you don't have uh, with uh, a subdivision. Because we can, we can buy another piece of land, maybe contiguous, but maybe uh, two kilometers from, from where we are, build the same housing or even better housing that we have now and to tell the clients, uh, look, uh, um, I know you live good, well there, uh, but uh, we need uh, this uh, space. Uh, we have, uh, with private, uh, we have uh, leasing uh, that uh, it's only three months, uh, renewable, of course. And then, uh, I mean, if, if we already know a person well, we keep a lease of one year. So we wait at the end of the lease and then we tell them, look, we have the same house. It's just a little bit far, same price. We can also give you two months free if you, if you move there. And so we'd be able to destroy the house that we have now and to build a rise and so to take advantage of the increased value of the land. This is only one of the advantages of an entrecom over a subdivision because you cannot do that with a subdivision unless you use eminent domain, which frankly for us libertarian, it's a little bit 
be difficult to, to, to accept I mean, in the domain. Fantastic. I think that's, yes. No, so uh, what I'm saying uh, that the idea is that uh, it, this is a city, a city that has all type uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, industry and activities. Uh, in this sense, I'm totally Haitian. We start uh, serving the Makila, but then I love the idea of having Alex uh, starting uh, with the, with the uh, crypto industry and so but it's not also only very diverse in terms of industry. I, I hope it's going to be very diverse in terms of uh, uh, social class. I hope uh, we'll be able to have uh, blue-collar workers, uh, um, to have uh, lawyers, uh, to have uh, rich foreigners that want to retire, like a, like a real city is. You, you have no idea what the city is going to be in 10 years. And we understand this. This is a, uh, we, we need to maintain epistemological humility because if not, uh, we build uh, those monsters uh, like in China that, that then people don't go. Great. We have one question from the chat. Um, but as to note, I find that so interesting and so fascinating because in many areas around the world, like in California or whatever, it's just the costs of regulation are so high that you can, it's not affordable to build like cheap or smaller scale housing, right? So a lot of the, um, you know, housing crisis affordability, you know, you can effectively solve by doing your own regulations or avoiding the cost of regulations. But we have a question in the chat uh, by Christian. Um, Massimo, what's the relationship between Mora Zanzere and the municipality of Shaloma? Well, technically, we are not uh, part of Choloma. Once the Zede is uh, built, uh, it's, it's, uh, the, the, the land uh, is not part of Choloma anymore. Uh, according to the constitution, uh, the change of the constitution that they did uh, to introduce the Zede, the territory of Honduras is divided in municipality and Zedes. There are three of them. Now, from a practical point of view, uh, uh, we want to be good uh, neighbor, uh, not uh, for uh, vacuous uh, uh, cliche of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, ESG and uh, business responsibility and all this bullshit, but be because just it's, it's good business and, and uh, reasonable and decent life. So, for example, we are creating, uh, and hopefully we'll create a lot of uh, traffic uh, to come uh, to, to our area. And uh, the road outside uh, is not uh, paved in this moment. Uh, so we offered already two years ago, but they didn't take the offer. We offer uh, to pave uh, one and a half kilometer of road uh, to, to come there. And uh, there are tool uh, arounds uh, that they are always... Uh, uh, short of money and uh, short of space. Uh, so uh, we finance them. Uh, uh, well, first of all, it's very cheap and it's a very decent things, uh, the thing to do. And also people, for example, come uh, to play football uh, when they have PE, you know, physical education. They come and play football uh, in the Zede. And uh, so it's also a good way for us uh, to show them uh, that we are not... Uh, a neoliberal monster that it's uh, children 
but actually we, we, we care about them and about the society in general. And a little bit, uh, bit by bit, uh, it's working. I mean, there are people that at the beginning were very scared and they hate us, uh, uh, even if they didn't know us, uh, that now come, come to visit us once in a while uh, because their kid uh, told them uh, that actually it's a nice place. Certainly, very nice place. Um, we have another question. What's, Massimo, what's the relationship between you and the technical secretary, secretary of Ciudad Morazan? Yeah, when we talk about Zede, actually, uh, in case of Sudamura San, uh, we are talking about two different uh, entities. One is uh, a political entity, non-profit uh, entity, that is the entity that uh, raised the money through taxes, the famous 5%, and provide the public service. This is a public entity recognized uh, by the, the Constitution, and uh, the technical secretary, it's a powerful function that basically uh, it's equivalent uh, to the position of uh, mayor and uh, also uh, councilman of a traditional municipality. This is non-profit. Actually, according to our charter, if at the end of the year uh, we do not spend the 5% because we manage to spend less than 5%. Actually, the technical secretary managed to spend less than 5% to give the service. The surplus is given back to the taxpayers. And actually, the six or seven months we could work since the beginning of uh, 22 until, uh, until basically when, when uh, the new government was elected, uh, we had a surplus. We had a surplus of $20,000 per, uh, per month. We were spending like $40,000 in public services and we were raising uh, $60,000 in taxes So per month. We had a surplus and we were going to give back the money to the, to, to the residents. Uh, so on one side, there is this uh, political non-profit entity in which the technical secretary now is nominated by us, uh, approved by the government, uh, and in the future will be elected uh, by the residents. And then on the other side, there is the for-profit company, uh, which is the owner of the land. And so uh, the for-profit for company simply rents the land, makes money on rents. Uh, this is... Uh, a problem of an intercom compared to a subdivision because subdivision sells the land so can finance itself very fast. Let's say buys the land at $5 per square meter, then the new institution uh, improves the value of the land, let's say at $15 per square meter, so they sell a piece of land and at that point uh, they can finance other land and other bills. An intercom doesn't have this advantage, recoup the money with the rents. And so it's much more capital intensive. And uh, it depends on the building, but uh, in our business plan and what was actually working at the election of the new government, that what we had a payback on industrial building of 10 years uh, and a pay, I'm, I'm talking about payback and not leverage. While uh, the payback on uh, residential houses uh, was like 20, 22 years. Uh, so it's much more capital intensive. 
said that uh, the 150 million that were uh, my seeding uh, were just the beginning because I was already talking with people in, uh, in San Francisco uh, that were interested in putting money in, in Morasan. That say they are particularly interesting to the people in San Francisco because these guys uh, are weird uh, people because on one side, uh, they are very, they are fundamental, fundamentally libertarian in understanding that the market is much better than the state uh, in providing services. On the other end, uh, they are uh, completely woke and uh, ESG and all the bullshit. So for them, uh, the idea of investing, especially in Morasan, which is uh, focused on relatively poor people, it's attractive because they do something that is good for their missions, let's say, but in a way that use tools that are typically of free market. So before the election, we were actually pretty, we were the nice lady, at the, the, the nice girl at, at, the, at the ball. We had many people touching door, knocking door and asking if they could invest. And we have the economics to make it also profitable. I do believe that uh, if they allow us to do what we have in mind, uh, not only we will improve radically the life of people living in Ciudad Morasan and improving in general the life of the rest of Honduras, but we will become very rich in the process. Fantastic. I'm so excited to talk to you about this. And I think many people in this chat are, and there are more questions. We're a lot over time though, so I'm just suggesting to close it here with some final questions because some of the other questions we could also address through Alex and through Joyce, right? So one is about the model um, that is part of the philosophy of Spencer Heath McAllen, right? So to Vic's question and Tobias, to your question, Alex will talk a bit more about doing business in Morazan later. So Massimo, my final question to you is what, um, how can we help? What help do you need most right now to support the mission of Morazan? Look, if you ask me one year ago before the election of this government, they would say tenants. We don't need the money. We don't need the legislation. We need tenants, in, especially industrial and business tenants, because those are those that attract uh, residents uh, and, and uh, create uh, the virtual circle. Uh, now we are in this limbo. And uh, the only thing uh, that I can uh, imagine uh, that we like, uh, that we need, uh, is uh, your continuous uh, uh, um, appreciation for the efforts. For example, I think you were with uh, Tabarrok recently, right? With Alex Tabarrok. So uh, talking with him uh, about this, uh, uh, we can create uh, a, a much bigger uh, uh, resonance chamber, uh, a way of increasing our voice. Uh, and uh, frankly, I'm skeptical. It would have a lot of impact uh, on, on the guys here uh, because these are really people that is very difficult to deal with. But uh, international goodwill, uh, it's uh, something that we absolutely, uh, it's helpful for us. Thanks, Massimo. This conversation was really, really inspiring and engaging. Um, your inspiration to many of us who um, are supporting this community, are living in this community, and more than happy to help in the ways that we can and make um, Morasan's name well known 
um, abroad and hopefully um, sort of gathers the support and awareness for it. Thank you, Nicholas. I want to add uh, that uh, before uh, I, before the election, I was going to move there with my family and we were going to live there and go, my four kids were going to school there. And uh, like they say in, uh, in Silicon Valley, we eat uh, our dog food. With that, I would like to hand the mic over to Joyce Brand. So Joyce is the biographer of Spencer Heath McAllen, an important um, thinker and writer that has inspired Massimo and the philosophy behind Ciudad Morazan. I'm very curious and very looking forward to hear more about the about Spencer Heath McAllen and the inspiration that he provided to Morazan. It, the ideas actually start with uh, Spencer McCallum's grandfather, Spencer Heath, who was a really remarkable man, a Renaissance man of the early 20th century, uh, uh, an engineer, a manufacturer, uh, an inventor, uh, uh, a lawyer, uh, many roles, and uh, most importantly, a social philosopher and social thinker. And his he was, had very innovative ideas about um, humanity's evolution. He felt that the, uh, the human society was evolving, that uh, representative democracy was a necessary step on the way up from absolute monarchy or the divine right of kings, that type of thinking, but that it was actually the coercive political governments that came out of that were a pathology that would eventually evolve into voluntary contractual governance rather than political coercive governance. And what he saw as the, the obvious provider of government services was not a, a represented democracy coercive government where uh, the, the people ruled themselves supposedly through representatives. He saw the problems with that. I think he understood public choice theory long before it became a thing that um, the the people who make the rules and uh, execute the rules, uh, judge the rules, they all are human beings who, like everyone else, um, are incentivized by their own personal interest. Uh, so obviously politicians, their interest is, their personal interest is not in serving the public. It's in getting reelected and staying in power. And that's, that's a natural part of human nature. And it was the incentive. He saw the incentive is what creates the problem. So that laid, led him to believe that what we have to evolve to and the way he, he actually was very optimistic that the way human society was evolving was toward a voluntary contractual form of governance of providing public services that um, uh, we are actually, you know, that he was the first one to really talk about that idea that landowners were the obvious people to provide public services because they were the people who had an incentive that was most closely aligned with the people that he saw uh, 
human humanity evolving to serve one another for profit, that the best thing people could do for themselves was to serve their fellow men, <laughs> serve each other for profit. And that's um Massimo is described so so brilliantly the, the advantages of the owner being able to use the market discipline, uh, the discipline competitive forces to create the kinds of uh, rules and regulations and provide the kinds of services that would be what people most want. And when you think about it, it's um, it's easy for people to go to a ballot box and mark a ballot for somebody that they think is going to do what they want, but they don't even really, not only is that person not guaranteed to do what they want, but that person doesn't even know what they want. Um, the only way to know what people really want is to find out what they're willing to pay for. And that's exactly what, uh, the Entrecom model is based on that people will pay for what they want and that will tell you what they really want. So an entrepreneur finds out what people are, are willing to pay for, whether they even say it, you know, and you don't have to do a poll to find out what people want, but you can find out an entrepreneur is really good at listening to what the market says. And that's how you find out what people want, what services they want, what they're willing to pay. And that's what makes the property owner the one who's most incentivized to provide the best services for the people that live on the land. And the choice, the fact that people can exit, that they can choose where they want to live, it's a matter of in in some ways, I mean, people talk about how great democracy is, but the real democracy is not, you know, filling out a ballot and dropping it in a box. The real democracy is voting with your money, uh, voting with your feet, voting by choosing what goods and services you want and being able to uh, have multiple choices. So Spencer Heath, understood that and he wrote about it and the value of the property owner because they they have uh not only they you know receive monies and rent but the value of the land increases um that's the way to determine what what people really want and and provide the services they really want now spencer heath mccallum is the grandson of spencer heath and our friend, Massimo's friend, my friend, uh, understood the value of his grandfather's ideas. And he, he felt that it was his life's work to um, not only preserve his grandfather's ideas, but to build on them. And his degree was in, um, as a social anthropologist. He did a lot of uh, study himself in different types of voluntary contractual governance. And people talk about HOAs as being a voluntary contractual type of government or governance, but it's still political in the sense of uh, 
whoever has the strongest voice or man manages to get people, the most people to vote for something um, are the ones that make the decisions. So the difference between uh, an HOA, which is basically a subdivision uh, that's ruled politically, is that in an entrecom, it's not, you don't need, you have a, real, a more real democracy in that people are really showing what they want by choosing what they're going to pay for and where they're going to live. And you don't have the disadvantages. I think most people have heard horror stories about HOAs, but that's, it's true of any kind of subdivision where uh, one person or one faction can basically take over the the rule of the community or the city or the state or the nation. And with an entrecom, and especially as more and more are built and there's more and more choices, they become more and more responsive to the actual desires of the people, of all people. Uh, so it, no matter what um, social class or race or religion or you know, anything else, any other category of groups, um, with free markets, you can find someone to serve the needs of the individuals, uh, regardless of their groups. And each, if, if you want to group people, groups can find some way to have their needs met. And so that's the, the basic philosophy of Morazan that, you know, that Massimo explained so well about, you know, you don't know what they're going to want in 10 years. You don't know. You can only keep changing and providing the things that you find the people want. And uh, that's pretty simple, you know, pretty simple explanation of the philosophy behind, I think, uh, will you agree with me, Massimo? That that's the kind of basic explanation of the philosophy behind Ciudad Morazan. You can do the best for your fellow men by providing what they want at prices they want in a competitive environment. Absolutely, which is the same of uh, any market process, uh, test, uh, trial, uh, uh, any case, uh, cloning and, 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 and uh, scaling up. The problem is that uh, in a coercive environment, there are not incentive. Uh, nor the market mechanism to punish uh, uh, the failure. If a politician fail, increase taxes. It doesn't go out of business. Right. And that is the problem with the any kind of political system. The incentives are so perverse because the, um, the people who make the rules and, and enforce the rules have no, um, they have nothing to lose by being mistaken or being even malevolent. Um, and even people like politically, even people that go into politics thinking that they would, they want to serve their fellow men. And first of all, <laughs> they don't know what their fellow men want because they have no price, uh, price signals to tell them. They have no way, since taxes are taken involuntarily, there's no way to know what people actually want to pay for. And so no matter how well-intentioned they are, 
if they're depending on votes rather than people voting with their dollars or voting with their feet, then they have no way to know. And sometimes the most uh, good-hearted, supposedly benevolent people are the ones who do the most harm just because they don't know what people actually value. Uh, so this philosophy is something that there's so much misunderstanding about free markets and capitalism and, and that, uh, oh, the big corporations rule us. Well, the only way the corporations can have any kind of power at all is if they buy politicians, which, of course, they do all the time. As long as you have the political system in place where people, big, big corporations, corporations can buy politicians, that will happen. Uh, there will be politicians, even the ones who think they're doing right. Oh, but I have to please this corporate sponsor, you know, in order to stay in power so I can do all these good things that I'm planning on doing for the, for the world, for the people. So that's where um, this model, our, our biggest challenge is educating people about the the superiority of the free market and that means free market in governance as well as free market in everything else i mean there's so much proof of things that you know economic freedom is so powerful in, and we have proof of that in cities like uh uh hong kong singapore dubai shenzhen that's been proven but people don't really understand why that works because those places also have some authoritarian governance that even though they have the economic freedom, they don't have the personal freedom. Well, adding the personal freedom, that, that is giving people more choices is the thing that's missing, that you don't have to be a Hong Kong to be, uh, to have peace and prosperity, uh, if you have both economic freedom and freedom of choice politically, being able to move to the place that treats you the best. Um, so that's, I think that pretty much covers the, <laughs> the, the philosophical underpinnings and the need that we have to educate people as to those concepts. Uh, the thing, I mean, we wish, the obviously, as Marcel said, we wish the best to Prospera, but we think our business model is better because of that flexibility, because of the maintaining the ownership, uh, the advantages that the Entrecom has over any kind of uh, political uh, governance or uh, representative democracy. Uh, so letting people know that and, and like teaching people about the advantages of not owning your own home <laughs> to renting instead of owning, which is, I think, one of, one of the challenges is I know my generation was certainly uh, brainwashed into believing that home ownership was the only way to go. Uh, but now it doesn't even make sense anymore. Now that people are so much more mobile, the technology has changed so much. There's uh, there's no reason for people to tie themselves down with uh, buying a house and land that you might not be able to sell if you want to or have to. So uh, 
oh, I see it. Entrecom, entrepreneurial community. <laughs> I think I'm using too much <laughs> a short <laughs> entrepreneurial community where the the community is run by, but not really. It's run by the members of the community, actually. Um, so that's what we that's what we're doing with Ciudad Morrison. And thank you, thank you, Massimo. <laughs> You've made it possible for this dream to come alive. Um, it's wonderful. Well, wonderful. Thanks so much, Joyce. Like free market thinking applied to building a community. I sometimes like to say, so, you know, Adam Smith's hiding hand is, you know, even if you have bad intentions, it transforms it into something good. But if you're in the public sector, you have very good intentions and transform them into something bad. Right. So that's the, 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 so one question before was, and it's also kind of my question. Um, and I think, um, Massimo also talked about a bit about that. I think that's like the key difference between Prospera and the philosophy that you're building and living in, in Morrison. So am I correct in some understanding not having a, having kind of a single owner versus a subdivision? That kind of means there's no such thing as owning land or owning real estate in the zone, right? So that's rented. And also, Ciudad Morazan is not, that, that means Morazan just has to regulate much less, much less, there's much less of a political decision making process for these kinds of things, right? So Morazan doesn't really have to be or at least does as much of a regulator as opposed to Prospera, right? This uh, and and uh, also you, I mean rules are better than um, than bad uh, auto aut autocrats, right? The rule of uh, law and all this. We know how much important it has been for the Western uh, civilization. But sometimes uh, uh, the common sense uh, um, can be even better. I give you an example, which is uh, another big advantage of Pentagon is the resolution of conflicts. Let's imagine uh, a simple situation. We have uh, Morasan, Morasan, and uh, we have a school and maybe some 11, 12 years old kids. Uh, they start uh, uh, to, to, to vandalize during the night, lights, uh, or to, to, to vandalize. Uh, I don't know, the cars uh, of the neighbors. Now, see the difference we would treat as a situation compared uh, to a subdivision or a state, uh, which, by the way, a state is just a subdivision uh, with incredibly grotesque rules, but basically it's, it's a huge subdivision. Uh, so in, in our case, uh, let's imagine that we understand who, the, who they are, because maybe a, a classmate of them saw them, he doesn't want to testify, but uh, he tells us in, uh, uh, in, co in confidence that uh, he saw them, right? So in this case, we just go to the, to the father and we say, look, there is this fact, we are sure about that, uh, and uh, you've been a great uh, client of us, uh, and uh, everybody likes you. But uh, we cannot have your kids uh, to break uh, the car of uh, the neighbors. So your, uh, your leasing is up in six months. And uh, either you fix it uh, or we'd be in a situation in which we have to not to renew the lease. 
And uh, so most likely, especially in Honduras, uh, with uh, a few hits uh, on the face of the kids, uh, the problem is uh, completely resolved, right? It's uh, in dynamic uh, intrafamily. Uh, we, we don't want to know how, but, but I'm pretty sure that the problem is uh, solved. What happened in a state? I mean, first of all, these, these kids are not uh, uh, liable of being a judge because they are less than 14 years old. Then, then you have to use a huge amount of uh, resources, uh, judges, uh, lawyers, uh, and, and process. Uh, and, and then, and then what? I mean, uh, you cannot put a kid uh, in jail. Uh, so very likely what happened in, uh, in, uh, in a state uh, is that uh, they start uh, with all this uh, walk bullshit, uh, sending a social worker to your house, uh, or even uh, much worse. They, they take the kid out and they put in a foster, in foster care, right? So uh, in this sense, uh, using common sense and to talk to the father and to say, look, just uh, discipline your kid, uh, it's going to resolve the problem. Or uh, maybe we can find uh, somebody smoking pot, you know, some students that is smoking pot. I frankly, personally, don't give a shit if they smoke uh, pot or not, but we have to follow the penal law of Honduras, uh, so uh, we cannot keep uh, these guys there. So. We would go there and say, look, we know that you smoke pots because we smell uh, the, the, the smell. And uh, no, no, we don't. Look, I don't, I don't give a shit. I, I don't have to prove to you. I mean, if I smell again pot, you won't be here in two months. It's up to you. Decide. So th this easiness of uh, uh, solving conflicts uh, is possible in an entrecom. It's not possible... Uh, in a subdivision, because in a subdivision, even if uh, it's HOA, even if it's private, uh, you must have rules. You must have rules and follow procedures. And of course, uh, these rules and procedures become uh, ridiculously expensive and grotesque at the level of the state. But there are also at the level of smaller HOA. And, and all, all the, 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 the story and jokes about uh, HOE demonstrate it. Can I add one thing? Um, I notice in the chat, uh, you will own nothing and we will be happy. Uh, the thing about not owning your own home is not that you will own nothing. What it means is that you can take the money that you would spend for property taxes, maintenance, insurance, uh, uh, all of those things that you would normally have to spend on owning your own home, and you could take that money and buy other things, whatever other things make sense to you as being a better investment, uh, and possibly even uh, own uh, shares in the company that owns the city. Uh, I mean, that's that's a possibility. Uh, that we're, we're not selling shares in Morrison at the moment, are we, Massimo? But, you know, we could. Uh, that, that could be something that could be done in the future. No, actually, I mean, if a world of Entrecom becomes reality, the only way a public market, um, two-thirds of the wealth of people, two-thirds, 65%, it's real estate. It's more than shares, uh, obligation, and every type of financial asset that there is in the world. 
in the average, in average, uh, a, the real estate per person worldwide uh, is $35,000. So, it, and this is the average uh, international, includes places like Tanzania. Uh, so if you want to have uh, a city of 1 million uh, people uh, um, on average uh, with, let's say, Western standard, it's probably fixed 50 or $60 billion. There is simply no way a, a private person can have uh, the money to build that. You have to go to public markets. And this is, uh, this is very important because once you are in the public markets, uh, the, the, the owners, let's say the Ensman, the board, the board is made by, by people nominated the, the, by, by the big institutions like Blacks, BlackRock, Blackstone, some Black, all, all these uh, uh, guys, uh, Vanguard, uh, and so on. The only thing they care uh, is, uh, is to make money, is to, to make uh, a, a better return on investment. So the things uh, that the left says right, are the most ridiculous, that we want to have the ZD so we can uh, um, bring the kids uh, and, and uh, take out uh, the, organ, uh, the organs uh, and to create a black market of organs, for example. I mean, uh, if you imagine uh, Vanguard uh, or Blackstone or people like that, uh, that allows uh, a, a CEO or I mean, allows uh, such a business, but even things like a CEO doing uh, sexual harassment uh, to, 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 to the clients or so, it's, it's just impossible. I mean, the, uh, capitalism uh, is such a tough environment in which you cannot make mistake. If you make mistake, the price in, in dog market will go down and somebody more tolerant and more uh, wise uh, will buy you out uh, and uh, manage better the community. So you cannot have uh, uh, strange, weird, uh, uh, personal uh, uh, hobbies uh, and, and, uh, and to use it in the entrecom. Again, we are not the captain of the boat. We are just the man. And if we don't uh, manage in the best way, People will not uh, recruit us uh, as a handsman and will put another handsman in our place. Fantastic. I think it was really, really helpful to dig a bit deeper into some of these guiding mm -hmm. ideas behind Morrison and hear more about Spencer Heath and Spencer Heath McAllen. Um, we are a bit uh, over time. Um, so what I suggest is um, Alex gives the final presentation about doing business in Morrison. I'm more than happy to stay on longer. Right, Alex, you can come as also nodding his head. He's happy to stay on longer. So for any of you who, um, who don't want to stay on longer than that, um, wait, please hold on for this final presentation by Alex. It's very important to understand what's happening on the grounds in Morazad. But anytime after, to feel totally free to quietly drop out. Right, that's, um, but we're going to extend for as much as, as we can, and that will help you get to a deeper understanding of how it is to do business in Morrison. With that, thank you, Joyce. Thank you, Massimo. And I give it to Alex. So I guess while we're waiting on that, someone asked a good question that caught me off guard a little bit. What is bootstrapping? And I never really thought what's the strict definition. And I looked it up and they say, 
the key is to get one in oneself in or out of a situation using existing resources. So in the context of business, it's to build a business without having a ton of money invested in. It's one thing if you're venture capital funded and you have a million dollar budget to burn, but a bootstrap business would be more of one that is using its revenue or its owner's own resources to fund. So that gives an idea of kind of the spirit of Morazon and also Massimo, I think in general, operates by this philosophy that the business should be making money and revenue as quickly as possible. And that's really important for uh, doing business. So with that yeah. context in mind, I'll give you an overview of what it's like to do business in Bootstrap City and why I think it's an ideal place to start Bootstrap and scale your business. And this is a little Bootstrap logo that I made this morning. I hope you guys like it. So what's special about Bootstrap City? I'd say there's three things that are particularly notable. One, it has fantastic economics. Two, the business and legal environment. And three, the supportive community and government. I touched on all of these things earlier a little bit, but I want to go in more detail. Again, this one sentence gives you a really good overview. $120 rent, 5% tax. You can open a company in days for less than $100. It's near Honduras's top port and commercial city, unrivaled economic freedom, crypto friendly as well. So these are all, this is your one sentence, take it to your friends, why they should move to Bootstrap City or at the very least give it a visit. Right. Slide. So what do I mean by fantastic economics? Well, as Bill Clinton said, it's the economy stupid. Right. If it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. And few things make as much sense as Morrison. $120 a month. Like many people pay more than that for their internet subscriptions. For what you pay for your Netflix, Hulu, HBO, etc., you could pay for a whole two-bedroom apartment. So when you're trying to build your business, this is a huge amount of capital that you can pump back into the business instead of just blowing on rent. Peter Thiel uh, recently, a few years ago, moved away from San Francisco, and he said one of the biggest problems he saw with VC now was that he was spending about a third of his investment just on rent, and that was a complete waste. He'd rather spend it on actual technology and knowledge and productive matters as opposed to rent. Morazon allows everyone to do that in both their personal and business lives. In addition, there's good location economics. There's a lot of cheap places in the world. Go to some $1 a day village in any developing country and you can live for $1 a day. But you're going to be in a remote area, have poor infrastructure and poor quality of life. Honduras, on the other hand, is 40 minutes from, or Bootstrap City rather, is 40 minutes from Honduras's major port and commercial capitals and Pedro Sula. It's 40 minutes from a major airport and there's cheap two to three hour flights to the US, the biggest market in the world and probably where many of you are right now. So it's 
close. You can go home for Thanksgiving. You can go home for Christmas. You can go home for a business meeting. So that is hugely valuable that many other areas can't compete with. And lastly is safety. Most cheap places are not as safe as Morazon. There's not been a violent crime to date as far as I'm aware. And then lastly, we have the business economics, single 5% territorial income tax. This is unrivaled in the Americas. The only comparable places might be some of the Caribbean islands, but you're paying the tax in infrastructure costs, import taxes, value added, like no matter what, you're going to pay 5% territorial income tax is pretty much as low as you can get these days. Same thing in corporation process in a state like California, you're spending almost $1,000 a year just to have a, a company and then you may need business licenses and commercial space and all these other things on top. In Morazon, you could have your house, it could double as a business, a $10 company and a 5% territorial income tax. Your total operating costs for a year for a business can be around $1,000, including rent, including companies, including licenses, including everything. So that's really good economics and will help to make your business more competitive with its global peers. And lastly, there's affordable labor as well. Next, we have the legal environment. Morazon is big on arbitration and the Zeti itself has arbitration center. I've not used it yet because there's been no need. And I think just the existence of easy dispute resolution services reduces the need to use them because people know that, you know, they're going to lose. It's much harder to have malicious or abusive complaints when it's a simple, as Massimo says, it's a common sense process. The court's expensive and bureaucratic arbitration follows the common sense value proposition of Morazon. And unlike many places, it has the legal authority and police to enforce its verdicts. Uh, additionally, you have very strong property and contract rights. The Entrecom model is built on property rights, so they have good incentives to respect them. Low taxes, as we discussed before. Labor regulations are some of the best in Latin America. That's kind of a low bar, I would say, because Latin America is not a great region. But if you're competing with other Honduran businesses or even many businesses in the region, Morazon's labor laws are competitive generally. Uh, they also don't regulate many industries. This is a huge one that many Americans are learning about right now with the recent crackdown on crypto in the US. Whether it's securities laws or money service business regulations, it's becoming increasingly difficult to operate a new innovative business in America, not so in Morazon. Likely your industry is not regulated. If you're not hurting other people, then you can probably do it. Next, we have the supportive community and governments. This is a very underrated aspect about most places. Those who live in small jurisdictions may have been spoiled by this. I lived in Saipan previously. I know some here live in Liechtenstein, so they also have decent access to government. 
it gives you a big advantage over your competitors to be able to uh, find solutions, craft regulations, and just innovate quickly without concern of getting interfered with by the state. Also, the government is well positioned to uh, make introductions and connect people as well. So when I was looking to onboard some businesses into the crypto ecosystem, uh, Morazan was able to say, hey, you know, there's another business here. You should talk to them. Like I can help you guys to set up a meeting. And even they help to do translation as well. So that kind of service, where can you find where the government will not only help you to connect with other businesses that may be a good fit, they'll even provide some translation services as well. So I think this really shows the uh, incentives and spirit of Morazon where they want you to succeed. They want you to bring more tenants and they want everyone to be happy and successful. Other examples are uh, people wanted recycling in Morazon. There's an e-governance app that helps to power the city that, that Morazon was happy to work with. So overall, it's just a very supportive environment and kind of the opposite of what you normally think of when you think of government, at least me. I think of Reagan, you know, I'm the government and I'm here to help. You know, his famous five most dangerous words in the English language. Morazon is the opposite. They're actually here, they're accessible, and they help a lot, including uh, with this conference. So thank you, Morazon. But what about the similar or competing jurisdictions? So from my view, and I think I'm making the objective case here, Morazon is the best jurisdiction in the world for many businesses because of these economic freedom, livability, and access to the number one economy. Uh, Prosper, I'd probably put as number two. And Catawba, I think they're just an interesting jurisdiction as well that may be useful for people in the crypto industry like myself. So when you're normally looking at economic freedom, you go to these official lists, Heritage or Cato or pick your, you know, think tank. And here's one that I put on the right. They say Hong Kong, Singapore, and New Zealand are one, two, and three for this year's edition. I'm not sure if this is the current year, but you get the point of how these work. And so I would like to compare Morazon to these allegedly top 10 freest economic freedom jurisdictions. And when we look at various things such as the uh, private property rights in Morazon versus these places, I mean, Morazon has private police. It's completely private owned. Contract rights are extremely highly valued and respected and arbitration is the default. So it's all private based. So I'd say it scores more highly in that metric of the index, the taxes and regulations are also, I would say, far superior. Which country on this list can com compete? Even the UAE, which is probably the best in terms of taxes, they have more than 7.5% of GDP taxed. Morazon only taxed 5% of profits. So that's going to be much less than 7.5% of GDP. So that's, uh, even on the tax front, they're more advantageous. And 
Uh, to compare it to Prosper, I think we'll do that a little more later. So for the sake of time, we'll come back to that. And then lastly, I will note all of these jurisdictions heavily restricted businesses during the COVID crisis. And some were more severe than others, but mask mandates were common, requiring vaccination for customers, severe entry restrictions. Morazon did not do any of these. And these are just three examples of economic freedom where Morazon outshines these alleged uh, official top-ranked countries. I think if you zoomed in on other elements of the index, you would find Morazon is similarly competitive. I also created this little chart of what I call the real economic freedom rankings of some of the, the top countries. Often small offshore tax havens are highly free. They might not even have income or corporate tax at all. However, I would note they tend to have value-added taxes, import taxes, and high cost of living, which increase uh, their effectively taxes or are directly taxes. On the Prospero front, it has also very good and competitive taxes. But unlike Morrison's, they added more than required. Massimo actually wanted to have no taxes in his ZD, but the government required at least some taxes. And so he opted for the single territorial income tax. Prospera could have conceivably had a similar model, but they chose to add a value-added tax. So that means every transaction in the economy, you must pay the piper. They have a revenue tax, which is basically a double VAT in many ways. So now you pay a VAT, you're paying the revenue tax. There's also a land value tax and an income tax. So when you're bootstrapping a business, like uh, there's a pulperia, there's two pulperias that have been created in Morazon. These are mini marks. The first mini mark is now effectively closed. Had they been in Prospera, they would have been paying about 3.5% of every sale they had done to date to the government even though they ended up closing and losing money. They would also have to comply with more paperwork and more bureaucracy and all this stuff, quarterly value-added tax filings. And Morazon, none of this is required. You don't have to waste your precious capital to pay revenue and VAT taxes. So I think on the tax front, uh, Morazon shines very highly and outcompetes Prospera, the others that uh, for regulations, offshore tax havens often have less regulations than uh, onshore jurisdiction, but they still tend to have financial regulators and authorities, whether it's for blockchain or insurance or securities offerings. They tend to have uh, real bureaucracies, even if they're more free than their traditional onshore jurisdiction. Prospera is even better than your average offshore jurisdiction but it requires businesses to have liability insurance and there are plenty of regulated industries that need further sign-off or licenses or regulators. Then you look at Morazon again, no liability insurance requirements, generally almost no regulations for industries, uh, hazardous waste and stuff might require some regulation, but generally the approach as Joyce and Massimo discussed you allow people to start doing stuff. You just common sense. What do you want to do for your business? Okay, that seems reasonable. If you start to do stuff that 
you know, is outside the purview or destructive, then we don't renew your lease. And we may require you to shut down earlier if you're doing something like seriously problematic. And then we have company creation costs. So and it's, uh, Cayman Islands or one of these jurisdictions, it can cost thousands of dollars to open a company. And then you may need some financial licenses and stuff on top of it. They generally require you to use local lawyers. It's one of their sort of jobs programs to, you know, stimulate their economy. Uh, you have to use local lawyers, local registered agents or something similar. And it's often quite expensive. Prosper improves on this. You can open a company for around $500 in a matter of days. However, this is still a non-trivial sum of money. Living in Morazon, I think of things in terms of the cost of rent. You're basically paying five months rent in Morazon to open a company in Prospera. Where in Morazon, it can be as low as $10 to open a company. You may have to hire a registered agent or maybe hire someone to help walk you through the process, but we're looking at under $100 to open a company if you need some help or third parties and $10 if you just do it yourself. So I don't think there's a single jurisdiction in the world that can come anywhere close to $10. Even at $100 per company, Morazon would be one of the most competitive in the world. Next, you have the cost of living and livability. Keep hitting home on this $120 a month for rent. This is a huge, huge advantage for you and your business that you can't get anywhere else. Your tax burden is also going to be very low, 5% territorial. That means more is on source income. So if you just happen to own stocks, a company based in Liechtenstein or something, and they're paying you a dividend of a million dollars a year, that will likely not be taxed in Morazon because it's not sourced from Morazon. Sourcing could get a little complicated in niche situations. You also have the American worldwide citizenship process, but for most people, uh, there's huge tax savings to be had in Morazon if their businesses and investments are properly structured. And again, the cost of doing business from zoning to licensing to company incorporation are very low and make Morazon very competitive. A last feature that I want to emphasize that is, I think, extremely undervalued is access to America. As much as many may be frustrated with America and it tends to be a bully globally, it's still a very important market. Dollars are essential. Getting cut off from the dollar system could crush your business and make your life very difficult. Likewise, not being able to easily sell or meet with Americans can be a challenge. Morazon is in a time zone that covers much of America. You can see on this map here, the blue, Morazon is in this time zone. Uh, technically now it's in the red time zone because of that the clocks just changed last week, but it's basically in the heartland of American time zone. It's a short flight away. There's existing export infrastructure to America. So your products are not far away, whether you're importing or exporting products. And also the time zone. Balaji famously uh, made the assertion the most important thing now is the vertical plane. 
if you're in the same vertical plane, you're in the same time zone, and thus you can compete in the increasingly remote world. So if you're based in Morazon, you can work easily for an American company, show up to all the meetings in the proper time zone, and be very competitive with the biggest jobs market in the world. So this, I think, is a huge advantage for businesses and people looking to live and work inside Morazon. So I thought I'd just finish with the Prospera versus Morazon. I'm a big Prospera fan, but I think many foreigners mistakenly think that Prospera is the best jurisdiction out there and the place that they should live and do business. I think many would be better suited towards being based in Morazon, and I hope they'll come join us in Bootstrap City. So on the economic freedom front, we mentioned there's the four taxes in Prospera. It charges around $500 to open a company, almost 50 times Morazon's price. Liability insurance, so this is more fees and stuff you have to pay, and you have to deal with the regulations depending on your industry. The one thing I will say is Prospera has better labor laws for now, as Morrison designed its labor laws to be attractive to industrial companies and manufacturers in Honduras. So they wanted to make it a minimal extra research and HR costs. You can just basically do what you were doing before. But I suspect in the future, if Morrison grows, they may allow for additional labor law options as Prospera does. Then you have the livability adjusted cost of living. So the main campus of Prospera is on Roatan. Roatan's electricity costs are 50 cents per kilowatt hour or more. So this is very expensive for industrial use and even for residential use. You might not want to run your AC 24-7 the way you could in Morazon, which is about half the cost for electricity. There's fewer amenities in uh, Roatan than there is in the San Pedro Sula metro area. You can find all kinds of doctors and hospitals. You have uh, airports and all kinds of restaurants and other amenities you may be interested in. And the big one that I think is uh, underrated and often ignored is that Prosper charges $1,300 for non-Hondurans to be a resident inside Prosper. This is in addition to rent. So you have to both pay your monthly rent and you have to pay this fee to Prospera. Morazon charges $0 in residency fees. Your residency fee is your monthly rent. And so at $1,300, that's over 10 months rent in Morazon. You're having to pay just to be able to live inside Prospera without even having uh, actual accommodations provided. So this is a huge advantage over Morazon in terms of cost of living and quality of life. The American Proximity Index, I think it's pretty comparable. Maybe you can argue the Morazon ports are a little better and the Morazon airport is a little better. So that makes you a little bit closer to America and embassies and all those things. So next, that's the kind of general overview and I want to talk about a case study of my personal experience, what, how I had uh, doing business in Morrison, building stuff and everything else. So as I mentioned in the first segment, uh, I came from America in particular 
U.S. Mariana Islands, Saipan, arguably the most autonomous zone in America. I went there to get more autonomy and try to build a crypto ecosystem. But I started having trouble with all the federal regulations and challenges. I was spending more of my time trying to comply than actually building stuff. Getting very familiar, like I almost feel like a lawyer in some of these segments because I spend so much time reading and trying to figure out how to stay compliant with these laws. In Morrison, I didn't have to worry about any of this. There's no burdensome money service business, MSB restrictions. There's no securities law concerns. There's no legal tender restrictions in the U.S. States cannot make any additional legal tenders. It's banned federally. And there's no value-added taxes or capital. Uh, there could be capital gains taxes in some cases, but no value-added taxes to worry about either. So all of these things make business a lot easier and simpler. And it's in particular, you can do uh, KYC-free on and off ramping. So in the U.S., if you're selling crypto, at, say someone wants to buy $100 of your stablecoin and you want to charge them a $1 or $2 fee, this could be considered a money service business, require you to register both federally and locally as a money service business provider. And uh, that's somewhat of an onerous process. In Saipan, it was much easier than most places, but you still have to make sure to comply. And it's the compliance costs that I would say are even worse. You have very strict record-keeping requirements. You must get two forms of ID to do any money service business transactions. And you have to have a strict AML, anti-money laundering policy. So that means if I'm trying to build a little ecosystem that could just be in the thousands of dollars. If someone wants to buy into the ecosystem, I have to either charge them nothing and argue I'm not in the business. I'm not in the money service business because I'm not charging them anything. This is like not a business transaction. Or I have to get two forms of ID, KYC them, keep strict records, make sure to renew all my licenses, pay the renewal fees, and just have all the stress and compliance costs, protect their data. The list goes on and on. Just to sell them like $1,000, of even $1 uh, crypto sales could fall into money service business and thus all these regulations. Securities law is similar. You have to be very careful that you're not operating unregistered security. And the SEC is not very clear on what is and what is in the security Companies are being sued left and right for things that were seemingly fine for years. They talked to the SEC, there was no issue until one day there is. So all these go away in Morrison. Likewise, token swapping. If you want to go from one crypto to another in the U.S., that's a regulated activity. You're going to need to do all the KYC, money service business type stuff. In Morrison, it's not. Same thing for tokenization. If you wanted to buy some solar panels and then tokenize them as a token, and every month when the renter of the solar panels or the person buying the electricity, however you set it up, when they're paying uh, their fees, you could just split that payment out to every investor in the solar panel. So you can do these cool uh, crypto 
things that would be basically impossible because the regulations make it non-economical in the U.S. And it's even possible to create alternative legal tender. Prosperid has done this with Bitcoin and Ethereum. And Morrison may be open to adding legal tenders of some sort in the future as their economy grows. So this regulatory freedom is really important to me in the crypto industry. And it's allowed me to do some pretty cool things. I'm helping to set up the uh, ELPS. This is a Limhira-based stable coin that's currently operating in Morazon. You can use it to pay your rent, your utilities bill. You can buy stuff at the mini mart. Setting up this ecosystem is very easy in Morazon because of the regulations are not onerous. Company and corporation costs are low. The city is cooperative. Like it, it wouldn't be possible to do this in almost any other jurisdiction as easily as Morazon. And that's really important when you're building a business and trying to compete with VC-funded crypto operations. Uh, this over here is what it looks like to pay. Community Artists is the main landlord in Morazon. So this is a screenshot from the app. You would select your street your unit number, your payment, whether is it an invoice, is it some other fee, enter the number and the description. And here's a one minute video. We'll see if it plays, let's can get. So here it's doing, selecting all of these things. And this is something I wanted to make it so that anyone could pay their rent, whether they're familiar with crypto and don't even need to know what crypto is. If, you saw the first screen. There's no mention of anything but the Limpira stablecoin. But as far as they're concerned, this could just be a electronic payment app like PayPal. And so you can just enter in all of your information, select the amount to pay. It'll load it so you can confirm everything one last time. It's valid for 15 minutes and then you pay. So this was a, a real transaction in Morazon paid to Morazon's address. You could find it on the blockchain if you know where to look. And this is a cool ecosystem that was made possible by the business environment in Morazon. I know this was a pretty quick overview of it, and I'm happy to take any questions. My, my question is whether you think it would be worth it to actually build like a more professional wallet um, for e uh, Lempira uh, for Yelp payments uh, and also maybe add things like escrow uh, contracts, digital ID verification, like at the entry gate uh, and maybe also for like uh, digitally signing contracts, right? Like when you have some kind of contract there, you want to be like, okay, this person signed it with using their private key at that time. Um, do you, th do you think it would be possible to find investors for this or something like that? The, the reason I'm asking, because I have something similar, uh, already, um, and it might be, I might be able to combine it, um, here. Yeah. So right now, everything is pretty much contingent on the political situation in Honduras. So until we get more certainty. Uh, Morazon's size and scope will be somewhat limited. 
the businesses best suited to Morazon are either proof of concepts. So the stable coin ecosystem here is a great proof of concept. You can send the stable coin with no gas, which is pretty innovative and it's working. People use it every day. Like it's clearly a viable technology that has implications that could be scaled elsewhere. So I think it, it's great for like proof of concept type businesses and also businesses that can easily move in the event that the worst happens and you know, the government decides that, well, we're going to just uh, shut down the Zetis in some way or form, either legally or extrajudicially, then it's great if your business is mobile. And that's why it seems many of the people and businesses in the Zetis right now are those that are fairly mobile, remote workers, small one to two person businesses. So I would say if your business fits in one of those two categories, it'd be well suited for Morazon. Either you want a proof of concept and say, look, this is not used by a lot of people, but it's used by real people in the real world every day. Here's our uptime records. Here's the things we've learned, the innovations we've made. And then from there, uh, you'd be well positioned to raise money. Or if you have a remote business that would benefit from the low operating costs, the competitive regulations. Uh, for example, there's an exchange in the works coming to Morazon that's attracted by the uh, favorable business climate that it has. And that's a good example. If it needs to, it can move. And in the meantime, it can outcompete its peers just because it's much cheaper to operate from Morazon than elsewhere. Yeah, I have a question, Alex. What services do people, do residents here in Morazon need most of? What do you want, what do you need help with to, to build? Yeah, I think uh, the services we need most right now are community services like a gym, uh, a library, or some kind of communal meeting center, like a YMCA type thing would be great. And uh, we're actually working on that right now. We're collecting exercise equipment and kind of look at building some outside leveraging the low cost of labor and cheap materials. We're going to make one of those like uh, outdoor gyms with cement and wood and stuff like that. And also look at having an indoor component as well. Um, even exploring if you, the crypto transactions are above a certain quantity, then the gym membership will be discounted or even free. So kind of play with Uh, social incentives, how can things work? And that's something that I think is pretty cool and unique to Morazon. But to your question, gyms and other community services so that people don't have to leave. Great. Another question, what's your learning so far when it comes to um, crypto adoption with the, with the residents? Yeah, I learned a lot about crypto adoption, both here and in Saipan. Uh, I think an interesting case study is onboarding the first business and ecosystem. That's always a challenge. And I had some like hypotheses on how it would work and what they would want. And it turns out 
the most effective way to onboard the first merchant. We were going back and forth about various things. And I said, uh, how about I give you a loan in exchange, you take crypto and you can use the loan to pay. Like if you're worried about default risk or anything like that, then you can just pay yourself back from the loan. And so the infusion of capital is one of the best ways it seems to onboard businesses and make them like interested and invested in it. So that was one thing I learned. Uh, another thing I learned is that uh, it's a challenge to have bilingual applications. There's always something more to be translated that you don't realize whether it's the email confirmation for payments or some hidden menu that I learned as well. The third and perhaps the most important thing is uh, you got to make it as simple and idiot proof as possible because you never know what people will try. They're going to try to pay the wrong people, pay the wrong addresses, do whatever they can. And you should plan for that and make it easy to use as possible. Our goal is to make it so they don't even know they're using crypto. And I found that makes it very competitive. I really hope uh, some Bitcoiner comes in here and tries to compete. I think they're going to have a really hard time competing with the, the stable coin ecosystem that we built. And uh, we look forward to them forcing us to improve and become even better. For people interested in opening a company in Morrison, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, hello at bootstrap.city. You can send an email, you can message me on Telegram. Same thing for people interested in visiting Morrison, whether it's for a week or to stay for a month or two. Offer packages that include a free company and we're happy to have you and answer your questions. And we welcome new residents and businesses to Morrison. Fantastic. I can only echo that. I'm going to stay in Morrison for a week. Very excited about that. It's a very lovely community here. Looking forward to get my LLC as well. Thanks so much, Alex, for talking about how to do business in Morazan. I think this webinar um, was, so we're half an hour over. I think this shows how um, this webinar was really informative and giving us a really um, a deep dive into Morazan. learned about the background, about Zedes in Honduras and three cities worldwide. And we learned about the guiding vision behind Morazan that's influenced by Spencer Heath and Spencer Heath McAllen. And we learned what the Morrison ecosystem already has and what it wants to build and what it will be in the future. So um, it faced challenges, but we uh, also heard from many of the people involved in the ecosystem. We're very optimistic. We are building. We That's our best chance at sort of making this into something great that has all the potential and has all the ingredients. And I'm really glad that we're supported by so many people that came on this call and stayed so long even after. And really grateful to, to Massimo for having created Morazan. Really grateful for Alex to be a, such a lead in the community, for, for Joyce and for many others, uh, for B to um, make this community thriving and make it. Um, I'm very excited to be here and I love that it's always a place that I can come back to and uh, where I have friends and I have a community to look forward to um, to see you again. So thanks everyone for coming on and 
please stay in touch. You are in the Telegram group chats and help us build this great city. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.